He is a Denver native born of Denver natives. A former Denver chief deputy district attorney, he is now an active Colorado trial lawyer. Bright, independent, and full of fun, he has been part of the media for decades. This is The Craig Silverman Show. What a world, what a life, what a day. Saturday, March 12, 2022. Episode 87 from Russia without love. We are blessed to have Colorado reporters who spent major time and major moments in the Soviet Union. What was Moscow, USSR, and now Moscow, Russia. Larry Rickman is editor and co-founder of the Colorado Sun. He was stationed in Moscow. He went down to Chechnya to cover that conflict. Wow, was that a precursor of what was to come? Larry also went to Ukraine. He describes it all in a brilliant interview that leads off our show. Then we go to our segment called Right Wing Media Watch. Actually, I start with a good joke. I got off at the Les Shapiro Celebration of Life at Blake Street Tavern. And then in Right Wing Media Watch, I take off after Donald Trump, Tucker Carlson, Madison Cawthorn, and here in Colorado, Matt Dunn, Backbone Radio. You have to hear this sound to believe it. They do the thing that I do not like. They put down... Volodymyr Zelensky. I talk about that with our troubadour, Dave Gunders. We talk about our fathers. That's where you get information. When you can't get it from the media, where do you get it from? From your dad, your mom, your family, your friends. Can they really shut out information in Russia? How will this all turn out? And MC was also a great reporter for the Associated Press in Moscow right around the time before the Soviet Union fell and then fall, it did. You are going to learn about the Russian people, Ukraine, a whole lot of things. Let's get started with Larry Rickman. Enjoy. Michael, of course, is a great sponsor of my show, but more than that, he's my lawyer, my end-of-life planning lawyer, and I've got two dogs. What about you? I have two dogs right now as well. And not only do you love your dogs at home with your kids and your wife, but you get involved with dog issues in your law practice. Tell everybody about that. So I will write pet trusts, which is you can earmark money to take care of your pets. Um, You know, a lot of people, you know, they've got their dogs and they love their dogs. But then if somebody were to, you know, if if you were to pass away, you know, who's going to take your dogs? Who would would love your dogs as much as you do? I don't know that anybody would love your dogs as much as you do. But like, I grew up with dogs. And so if I were to pass away, then my parents or my siblings could take the dogs. So when you set up a pet trust, you can dictate who's going to get those dogs and then who you can leave money to take care of the dogs as well. I like working with you and I think you are ahead of your time. 
you have 15 different locations. How cool is that? It's, it is nice to be able to go to all the different locations and you know meet people where it's comfortable and more convenient for them. And nobody wants to drive from one part of Metro Denver to the other to meet with a lawyer. You will come to them. Yep, and I'll deal with traffic so you don't have to. Tell us how people can get in touch with you. My direct phone number is 720-394-6887, or they can go to my website, which is mobileestateplanning.com. And again, that's mobileestateplanning.com. And there's even a schedule, you know, there's a book an appointment link on this on the website. All right, Michael Bailey, thank you. I've been fighting for Colorado crime victims for the last four decades. There's a great new Colorado law. It allows victims as far back as January 1, 1960 to hold accountable the perpetrators and the organizations that allowed it to happen. If you were sexually assaulted, now is the time to come forward. Call me anytime you are ready at 303-861-2800. Ask for Craig, Craig Silverman, a voice for victims. I cannot think of a better guest. We are in an information war, and one of the top news people in Colorado is Larry Rickman. Larry Rickman is the boss at the Colorado Sun. He also is an owner. I'll let him describe it, but he has a background as an AP reporter, and he covered Russia, Ukraine during some very consequential times. We are in consequential times. Such a privilege to be able to talk to you, Larry Rickman. Thanks for doing this. Hey, thanks for having me, Craig. We would uh, call you an expert witness, but first I have to qualify you. Tell everybody about your background as a journalist and how it is you have some expertise about Russia, Ukraine, Chechnya, parts of the world where I've never been. I need to learn from you. Well, I've been a journalist for more than 40 years. I've worked uh, all around the United States. Uh, I was a national editor and an international editor for Associated Press in New York. And from 1991 to 1995, I was a Moscow-based correspondent for the Associated Press. So I helped cover the fall of the Soviet Union. I covered the war in Chechnya, traveled around Ukraine, as you mentioned. I um, covered the uh, fighting when, when Boris Yeltsin sent tanks against his own White House to uh, oust rebels who wanted to put the Soviet Union back together. Stop me if this sounds familiar. Oh, my goodness. Even going a little before that, at Colorado College, I studied Soviet-American relations under Fred Sonderman, Dave Finley, father of Bruce Finley at the Post. That's interesting, huh? But I always thought that detente, perestroika, if they got a taste of what the West had to offer, they would never turn back. But now we're in 2022. What's going on? Well, it is interesting. And, it you know, time will tell whether Putin really can turn the clock back. But you also have to remember that there were many people like uh, Vladimir Putin who were just uh, devastated when the Soviet Union uh, broke apart in 1991. They felt that that was a colossal mistake. And uh, frankly, uh, at the time, uh, the United States uh, was kind of dancing on the grave of the Soviet Union and, you know, thumping our chest that we were the last superpower, et cetera. And uh, that was probably, in retrospect, uh, not a great move on our part. Um, 
you know, I'm no shrink, but uh, Vladimir Putin clearly uh, has felt aggrieved all of these years and has dreamed of putting the Soviet Union back together, or at least some portion of it. I don't know that he wants all of the former state, Soviet states, but he certainly wants Belarus, Ukraine. And if I'm in Moldova right now, I'm looking over my shoulder, worried about Putin. But is Soviet Union toward what end? I mean, what does Putin think they're going to accomplish? Is it a communist idea or is it something different? Best I can tell, it's just a kleptocracy. I can understand personally why he wants to be the richest guy in the world, and I think he is. But there's more to it than that, right? Well, I, th I think you're absolutely right. It is more kleptocracy than, than anything else. I mean, honestly, you know, I lived and worked uh, in the Soviet Union, you know, under a communist uh, um, system. In, in my view, it really, for most people, it really wasn't about ideology. And it's, it's about power. And this is, that's all that this is. This is about power. And Putin cannot seem to stomach the notion of Ukraine looking west. He wants Ukraine, Belarus, Moldova, and Georgia, you know, the other Soviets, uh, former Soviet states to be looking to Moscow and uh, his power. It really is, is just about power and control, not about ideology. I've spent a lot of my career in the criminal justice system, and this feels like domestic violence in a way, because it's Russia saying, you think you're going to leave me, Ukraine? You think you're going to have a happy life with some other guy from the West? No, I'm going to come to your house. I'm going to wreck it. It feels like domestic violence with a madman who can just not let somebody go. Well, I don't I don't know that Putin is a madman, but uh, I don't think you're far off on that analogy. I mean, he'd clearly rather burn the house down than let Ukraine uh, get away. I mean, I it, it's hard to imagine what the end game here is at this point. I mean, I think, uh, you know, a charitable view of this is that Putin was uh, given bad uh, intelligence, bad advice, uh, thought that the Russians would come in and be welcomed as liberators, uh, thought that this would be a cakewalk and that uh, Russian soldiers would throw down their weapons and that, uh, I'm sorry, that the Ukrainian soldiers would mm -hmm. throw down their weapons and the Ukrainian people would, you know, throw flowers in their path. And that has, uh, that has not been the case. And he has, uh, he has won enemies for at least a generation in Ukraine with, uh, with this invasion. That's so interesting, the way you put it, and it sounds so familiar. Obviously, we heard when we went into Iraq, we would be treated as liberators, that same sort of thing. And then I took some hope from you saying Putin's not a madman. Are you saying this is just a miscalculation, sort of like Bush and Iraq? Well, I mean, I don't think he's a madman, but I don't think he's a good guy either. I mean, he's, he's ruthless. He's a dictator. He's an authoritarian. He's going to do whatever he can to gain every advantage. And uh, if that means, you know, bombing hospitals and shelling apartment blocks or whatever, I don't think uh, he cares about what price he has to pay at this point. But I don't think that's madness. I, I think that there is a, a method here. Frankly, I mean, again, I'm, I'm no shrink, but I, I think Putin is uh, looking to the history books and wanting to be seen as you know, some version of Vladimir the Great, who put back, uh, 
you know, corrected some historical wrongs and put back uh, a great Russia and some form of the Soviet Union. I don't really think that the that the Russians want the full Soviet Union back together. There was a lot of resentment back in, in my day when I was there. This was back in the 90s that for too long, um, Moscow had propped up, you know, weaker states you know, the the Kazakhstans and uh, Uzbekistans and and those types of places. At least that was the Russian perspective. But I don't think they ever felt that way about Ukraine and Belarus. You know, those are kind of their people, and um, they did not want to see a number of them did not want to see them go away. I'm trying to think of historical parallels. I should know more about the War of 1812 that came decades after we got our independence, but Great Britain, done, they didn't want to let us go. And then I'm thinking about the Civil War where the South said, we're going to secede, and the North said, not so fast. Are there parallels? Well, I actually do think what we're seeing, in effect, is a civil war. This is the civil war that Mikhail Gorbachev avoided when he agreed to uh, dissolve the Soviet Union in late 1991. You know, Gorbachev really was the first Russian ruler, maybe in history, to just step away from power. He handed over the nuclear codes to Yeltsin and the keys to the Kremlin and avoided a bloody civil war. But I think it really, in retrospect, was just delaying that war. This is a civil war between uh, former countrymen uh, of the Soviet Union. And are they fighting about cultural issues, much like uh, we do in America? And hopefully we don't have a civil war. But if you think about the culture of the South with slavery, we're going to have it. But this is the opposite. I, I think about another AP reporter I had on, Chris Tomlinson, who taught me about the Alamo. And you learned that there, Mexico outlawed slavery, but the Southerners in Texas wanted their slaves, and it led to conflict at the Alamo. And there it was the South, which was more progressive, fighting the North, which was into slavery and some uh, ideas that should be in the dustbin of history. So I see Ukraine, and correct me if I'm wrong, as a, a vital new country that embraced the West, became a Western European-like place for the most part. They loved democracy. They loved free speech. Maybe I'm romanticizing it, but is that what it's about? They embraced democracy too much? That's what Putin couldn't stand? They were doing too well? You know, there are uh, a number of elements here. I mean, first, first of all, there's been a long uh, cultural clash between Ukrainians and Russians. Um, when uh, when Russia and Ukraine uh, together, you know, formed the Soviet Union uh, way back when, um, there was a a big effort to you know eliminate nationalism. So the Ukrainian flag was it was outlawed. There were certain letters in the Ukrainian alphabet that were uh, either outlawed or discouraged. They wanted to make Ukrainian uh, the Ukrainian language more like the Russian language and. Um, you, frankly, under Stalin, uh, Stalin uh, forced uh, peasants to collectivize uh, back in the 20s and 30s, and that led to mass starvation. I mean, a forced starvation, state-sponsored starvation that killed millions of Ukrainians. And uh, so then, you know, what did they do? Stalin sent in 
ethnic Russians to repopulate some of those areas of Ukraine where so many people died. And now those places are some of the areas where we're seeing the you know ethnic conflict, where Putin is using this as justification for his invasion that you know he feels that uh, ethnic Russians in Ukraine are being discriminated against. But you know, frankly, dictators have used that sort of pretext uh, forever, and uh, this really is about power and control. And I I think you're right. I mean, it's it's not. It's not necessarily democracy so much, I think, that, that Putin is objecting to. It really is that Ukraine is looking to the West, not to the East. And I think it's important to remember that back in the 1990s, uh, when Ukraine left the Soviet Union, Ukraine had one of the biggest stockpiles of nuclear weapons in the world. They inherited many of the nuclear weapons that had belonged to the Soviet Union and uh when the Soviet Union fell apart, Ukraine agreed to give up its nukes in exchange for security guarantees from Moscow and from uh, and from the West. And um, you got to wonder what what things might look like today if uh, if Ukraine still had its nukes. Right, and we're going to get to nukes because that frightens me. Although you say that Putin's not a madman, I hope so. But what about his? fascination and worship and resurrection of Stalin. I mean, this guy was in the dustbin of history, I thought. I've never been to Russia. When you were there, was Stalin popular? Well, no. I mean, in general, he was not. Was he popular among a certain segment? Yes, absolutely. I mean, again, I uh, covered the fighting uh, outside the Russian uh, White House back in 1993. And um, a group of, frankly, Stalinists, communists, fascists even, took over the White House and were attempting to oust uh, Boris Yeltsin from power. They dreamed of putting the Soviet Union back together, and Yeltsin sent his own soldiers and tanks to fire on the White House to oust them. And it's it's just amazing to me to, to think back now that in a couple of years, he ended up turning power over to uh, to Vladimir Putin who shares more with those rebels than uh, than he did with uh, with Putin. Right. We were blessed to have two men, Gorbachev and Yeltsin, who made the Iron Curtain fall and, and Russia turned over without too much violence. But Putin came to power through Yeltsin, correct? He did. And, you know, frankly, it was probably a deal with the devil. Yeltsin was, you know... Uh, notorious for his love of alcohol and uh, was uh, rumored to be, you know, corrupt in that, you know, that he uh, he and his family gained some personal wealth uh, as the Soviet Union was falling apart. And, um, you know, the, the word is that that Yeltsin agreed to hand over power to Putin, a former you know KGB boss, uh, in exchange for Putin agreeing not to go after Yeltsin or his family. But uh, I, I just got to think that, that Yeltsin is uh, rolling over in his grave to see what, uh, what Putin has become. So it's the Russian concept of compromise. And it, you have a compromised politician like Yeltsin who has so many obvious vices. It would be easy to say, hey, you did this wrong. And with his KGB power, isn't that what they do? And let me ask you, when you were assigned by AP to these bureaus, 
Were you warned about it? Because I expect you were at Target too. Oh yeah, I mean, I I had heard all the stories, uh, and you know, had uh, knew what I was getting into when I was there, and uh, we knew that we were being watched and surveilled, and our phones were tapped, and all of those kinds of things. Honestly, uh, most of the time, it it didn't bother me. Uh, I figured with the Soviet Union falling apart, they had bigger fish to fry than to, you know, follow around a uh, a uh, an AP correspondent, but. Um, you know, it's uh, it's a different kind of uh, vibe to live in an authoritarian country where, um, I mean, we're seeing it right now. When I was there, uh, a free press was just beginning to, to sprout and bloom uh, in Russia. This was a, a foreign concept. For, for decades, the Soviet Union blocked uh, Western broadcasts, BBC, Voice of America, those kinds of things. They tightly controlled uh, the newspapers and television, and uh, that began to change back in the early 90s, and you had independent news organizations pop up. Well, now, you know, 30 years later, what are we seeing? But uh, Putin clamping down on freedom of the press. That's been one of the first things that he did, and some of the independent outlets have already closed, and some some journalists I know have fled the country rather than face the prospect of uh, spending 15 years in prison for just stating the truth, calling this what it is, a war. I mean, the actual word war is uh, is not allowed to be used in the context of this uh, Russian invasion of Ukraine. It kind of reminds me of Tucker Carlson telling Ted Cruz you cannot call it terrorism on January 6th. That's not allowed anymore. And Ted Cruz complied. I mean, that's the way autocracies work. I don't like it, but I'd like to know what it's like to be in it. Get a call, I imagine. Hey, Larry, do you want to go to Moscow? Or do they say, you are going to Moscow? And what do you do? Where do you live? How, how does life work? Well, you know, I'm a, I'm a history buff and um, always been sort of fascinated by, uh, you know, Europe back in the early 20th century, the, you know, the teens and 20s and 30s and 40s. And, um you know, I, I didn't have a crystal ball. I really didn't uh, imagine the Soviet Union falling apart. But when the Soviet leaders began to die off uh, back in the uh, early 80s, um, it became clear that Russia was in transition. And I just felt like, look, I, I, I need to be there. I want to be there. I want to, you know, be a witness to history. And uh, I began studying Russian. And I was fortunate to work for Associated Press is the world's lar- largest news organization. And um, they had a substantial bureau in Moscow. So I, uh, I transferred to New York. I put in my time and, uh, and went off to Russia. I mean, it, it was an exciting uh, posting for me, um, sometimes too exciting. I mean, I know what it's like to hear a Russian tank firing up close and personal and worry about sniper fire and... Uh, uh, I've been in a war zone where the Russians didn't want me or other Western journalists there reporting what was happening in Chechnya. You know, we constantly were scanning the skies, watching for Russian helicopters and Russian fighter jets. It was, uh, it was, a, it was a scary time. But again, you know, I went there exactly for that sort of thing, to be a witness to history, to tell the world what was happening in Chechnya and Russia. If somebody has a job like yours, can they take their family or no, you got to go alone? It's a war zone. Well, I did have 
I did have family and, and do have family. My family was with me in Moscow. Um, I did not take them to a war zone. Uh, they were not uh, down in Chechnya where things were. Uh, and frankly, even when Yeltsin sent tanks against the White House in October of 1993, you know, my apartment um, and my family were on the outskirts of Moscow, far from the fighting and the shooting. So they were pretty safe. But, you know, yeah, it's it. it you know, the whole family was was certainly part of that. And I would imagine that if I were there today, uh, I would be sending my family out of Russia. I mean, I would feel a commitment to stay there, but I would not uh, I would not have my family still there. How did you learn to speak Russian? Uh, well, Associated Press uh, sent me to uh, New York University uh, for a few semesters. They uh, sent me to a language school. Uh, I had a private tutor. Uh, um spent quite a bit of time. I mean, it's, you know, it's a, it's, it's a tough language. It comes more naturally for some people than others. And um, I work with just amazing uh, linguists uh, in Moscow. I had a, um, a Russian teacher in Moscow as well. I had one in New York. And, uh, you know, I, I, I work with colleagues who are absolutely fluent um, and bilingual. I was not that. Um, my conversational Russian was fine. I could get by, but, you know, when you started talking about nuclear weapons and complicated, uh, topics, you know, I, I relied on a translator for some of those con conversations. Yeah. I cannot even follow that in English, but Russian seems like <laughs> such an impossible language. What is it with that alphabet? How long does it take you to get past that? The alphabet was the easy part, uh, from my perspective. It's uh, it's the grammar that uh, was, you know, like with any language, the grammar and the vocabulary were tough. And you know, it's like anything else. It's like learning a musical instrument. You know, you just have to put in the time and the and the effort to uh, to get it. But honestly, the alphabet uh, was the easy part. So once you learn Russian, is Ukrainian easy? Yes, it was uh, much much easier for me. I mean. There are things like, uh, oh, there were expressions, you know, to say a lot of money in Russian would be manoga dienghi. And in Ukrainian, it would be manoha dienghi, you know, uh, an H rather than a G. But, you know, if you could speak Russian or if you could speak Ukrainian, you could make yourself understood in the other language for the most part. Speaking, they, have, they, have so much in, they, they have so much in common. They really do. And it's it's heartbreaking, frankly, to see what's happening in Ukraine right now. I, I have friends and colleagues in Ukraine. I have friends and colleagues uh, in Russia. And my Ukrainian colleagues have had to fl flee Kiev and take their families with them, and they've scattered uh, off to the West. And to, you say uh, to, Kiev, and that's respectful of the Ukrainians, right? That's the way they say yes, it. The, Kiev is Russian? That's right. Yeah, in fact, I've had to retrain myself a bit because, again, I... I learned Russian. I was taught by Russians, and um, my Ukrainian pronunciations uh, came via Moscow. So I've had to uh, to relearn some of that. And you know, but language does evolve, and uh, you know, we do try to be respectful of Ukrainian pronunciations, Ukrainian spellings, and transliterations. Um, no, they. Despite what Putin says, I mean, Ukraine has a long and proud history as a as a separate country. Right. And they don't like being called the Ukraine. They're just Ukraine. And I make that mistake all the time. Um, and it's sort of an indicator whether a person believes they're entitled 
to their independence. But it's a country as large as Texas, I'm told, 40 million people. What are they like down there? I mean, did you like them? Is it does it feel like a Western European capital? You know, the the people I know in Ukraine are are just lovely, just very friendly, uh, smart, interesting people who, you know, just like everyone else, they would like a better life. They want to. They focus on their families, and they, you know, uh, are trying to throw off the the yoke of decades of Soviets and Russian oppression and uh, hoping for better lives. And for them, that meant looking to the West, not to the East. They know they knew what it was like to be under Russian control, under Moscow's control for decades, and they were done with it. They were, you know, frankly, they had a um, kind of a Russian puppet uh, in control of their government just a few years back. And there was a popular uprising and they threw him out. And Ukraine has uh, has been looking to the West uh, ever since. And, you know, a guy like Putin just is not going to stomach that. He was not going to let them get away. Right. He spent a lot of money on Paul Manafort and others to prop up the pro-Russian guy, right? Don't you find it fascinating that Paul Manafort was so involved in Ukraine and we had an impeachment over Ukraine? What's going on in Ukraine? To me, and you can correct me, it looks like two bullies picking on what they thought was a weak country and a weak leader. And they, they just tried to use and abuse Zelensky, and it's not working out, at least not so far. Well, it's been, I mean, it's obviously tragic and sad, but, you know, fascinating at the same time. I mean, clearly, Putin, Trump, and others uh, misjudged Zelensky and, you know, just viewed him as a former actor and comedian and a political lightweight, uh, in their view, who could be bullied and pushed around. And it's been far, far from that. I mean, a crisis, you know, can reveal character. And I think we're seeing Zelensky's character uh, in this particular crisis. He has shown incredible resolve and steel in dealing, frankly, both with with Washington uh, uh, and in dealing with Moscow as well. It's uh, it's been re- been really remarkable to see his uh, to see his evolution. And does it surprise you, knowing the character of the Ukrainian people? Has Zelensky been a surprise, or did you regard Ukraine? I mean, it's not just Zelensky; the whole country is following his lead. If you were advising Putin, would you have warned him? Hey, I don't think these guys really want to be part of Russia anymore. Oh, absolutely. But, you know, uh, Putin's not going to be listening to, (laughs) he's certainly not going to be listening to me. But, you know, what's, what's fascinating is, you know, Putin has worked very hard over these past few years to sow discord and, um, uh, you know, division uh, in the West. You know, his dream was to, you know, to break up NATO and to, you know, have, uh, you know, frankly, people in the United States divided and and the United States divided from Europe and uh, Ukrainians as well. This this invasion has uh, has completely turned things on their head. NATO has probably never been more united. You now see, you know, I, I know that there are, are pro-Putin uh, Republicans out there and maybe pro, pro-Putin Democrats out there, but largely Republicans and Democrats have come together to denounce this invasion of Ukraine. Uh, 
NATO has probably never been more divided. And the Ukrainian people were, you know, I mean, Zelensky was popularly elected, but uh, he had his detractors. Even his political foes uh, have rallied behind him now. Ukraine is probably more united today than it has ever been. Behind Zelensky, behind the, you know, notion of Ukrainian independence and uh, things have gone terribly wrong for uh, for Putin in this whole process. I agree with all of that. It's mid-March, though. As this war grinds on, um, then will people lose their focus? Will Ukraine start to divide? Will America? I watched Donald Trump with Hannity, and Hannity threw him softballs. Hey, Putin is evil. He wouldn't say it. And there is a contingent of Republicans, some of them in Colorado, who are openly supporting Putin. And with the president, former president in the lead, I think they expect that will grow. And I'm also thinking that the timing of this war corresponds with the January 6th committee's plans to have big April hearings uh, exposing the wrongdoings of Donald Trump. And I don't think Donald Trump wants that to be on the front page. I don't think Putin does. So maybe I'm seeing conspiracies that don't exist. You don't have to respond to that. But when you mention all the designs of Putin, I'm thinking about the world's richest man. We already talked about compromise. I'm worried. I really am that Russian money has not just affected Donald Trump, but a number of Republican politicians Let's just start with Kentucky, Rand Paul, Mitch McConnell, uh, you know, the the Russian autocrat who's involved with the coal industry. Am I on to something here, Larry, or is this a rabbit hole? Well, no, we're going to learn more about this. Um, There's clearly a lot of Russian money floating around in the United States as well as uh, as well as Europe. But, you know, it's early days. I mean, I I I frankly think that. you know, at some point, the Russians have the ability to crush Ukraine. I mean, there may not, may not be much Ukraine left when this is all over. I'm not sure that Putin cares at this point. You know, I think that he is intending to win at whatever cost. But um, it's it's hard for me to even fathom what you know, the possible end game here is because he, you know, could be he and Russia could be facing decades of insurgency, uh, certainly decades of resentment and opposition. You know, are they really prepared? Number one, uh, if you break it, you buy it. Are they, are, is Russia prepared to rebuild these Ukrainian cities that they have destroyed? Are they prepared to fund an occupation army for decades? Because I think that's what it may take. It's really, it's, it's difficult to imagine how this uh, ever ends for, uh, for for Russia as long as Putin is in the Kremlin. It seems clear that Putin is the punisher. He wants to punish Ukraine for not coming back into the fold. And his role model is Stalin, and he just starved them out. And given the weather there, I'm sure people are freezing to death even as we speak. He, If his role model is Stalin, isn't that he's just going to destroy Ukraine and maybe build it up some other day? Yeah, it's again just it's tragic to see. It's heartbreaking to see, and I I really don't see that there's any way out of this uh, that you know ends up uh, making Russia stronger or or greater. 
you know, again, they may be able to, well, they will be able to occupy Ukraine at some point, but it's going to be uh, long, expensive, and, and bloody. There's just, there's no good outcome, and, and the human cost is, is just so terrible to, uh, to contemplate. And I, I just, it, I'm just shaking my head over Putin. I really did not think that he would, he would go this far. I mean, I think that uh, uh, it was more likely that he was going to grab what he wanted to grab, same as he grabbed uh, Crimea uh, back in 2014 and the western provinces of Ukraine. Um, I just really did not see that uh, he was going to go all in on this. But I, I think that the more the Ukrainians resist, the more resolve Putin is going to show. And I think this is just going to get bloodier and, and uglier in the days and weeks and months to come. I don't think it can go on like this. I don't know if the world will tolerate it. And I was looking to you for hope because you were there when Russia reformed. Can't it happen again? What about a Russian coup? What about the Russian people? Are they ready to turn on Putin? Could it ever come to that point? And uh, you talked about how fond you are of Ukrainian people. What about the average Russian? Is there any hope? that they can get this done? Well, I have a lot of fondness uh, for uh, for the Russian people. I, I have many friends over there still. They're lovely people, and um, but they're not in control of the Kremlin. And again, back to freedom of the press, I mean, it does matter. I mean, Lenin and Stalin both understood that, and Putin certainly understands that. You control the, the means of information. And... Um, you know, frankly, a lot of uh, your average Russians, if you're a, uh, a tractor, uh, working in a tractor factory off in the, the middle of Russia somewhere, you know, you probably don't know any more than what uh, state television and state newspapers are telling you. And at some point, will they begin to feel the pain? Sure. Uh, will younger Russians and, uh, you know, call them middle class or even Russians with some means, those folks know what's going on. And the question is, will enough of them uh, be able to uh, rise up uh, and do something? I, I don't know. I mean, at the end of the day, uh, does Putin have the loyalty of the military? Does he have the loyalty of the security services? You know, he came up in that world. So my guess is that he does. But you never know. I mean, the fact is, um, look, the the Soviet people throughout the communists, uh, really without firing a shot, you know, because it, it became clear that they had lost the support of the people. People got tired of living in poverty, which is what uh, they had been subjected to for decades under the Soviet system. And at some point, will people get tired of Putin? Time will tell. And we're in a time of information. This is the information age, yet we see so much disinformation, and the Russian people are peppered with it. I'm going to play and sound this podcast of a remarkable website, Father Please, because there are a lot of intermarriage relationships between Russia and Ukraine, and a son talking to his father in Russia, hey, Dad, they're bombing us. Why don't you check in? And he, his dad doesn't believe it because he gets Russian disinformation. But I don't know how that's going to work in the year 2022, Larry. I think that's something that hopefully Putin has calculated. You cannot keep information out. It's too hard these days. 
What are they going to do? Stop phone calls from people outside of Russia? Maybe. But with the internet, and I'm sure the BBC and hopefully the United States will start broadcasting, and they have to know something is up when McDonald's is closed, Starbucks, Twitter, Facebook. What are these Russians thinking about all of that? No, I think you're right, Craig. I mean, th- this is not 1970 or 1960 or even 1980 or 1990. We're a much uh, more connected world, even in Russia, where they have control over uh, you know online outlets and and TV and newspapers and all of that. It's really, really hard to keep people in the dark in today's uh, interconnected modern world. I, I do think that eventually the scenes of maternity hospitals being bombed and that sort of thing, those things will get out and it, it will have an impact. But, you know, um, it's it's just difficult to say. It's hard to predict what's, uh, what people are going to do. I, I, I think at some point, I would like to think at some point that uh, the Russian people will be fed up with this. Look, there are a lot of people with families in, you know, Ukrainians who have families in Russia and Russians who have families in Ukraine. And, you know, it's like, uh, I don't know, you know, Colorado invaded Utah or something. It's it's uh, I'm thinking is, more this, like I'm thinking more like Wyoming. Remember when Weld County wanted to secede and Wyoming just yes. came down and took it. And, you know, so that that's the <laughs> metaphor I like. Yeah, no, that's probably more apt. Uh, and it's, uh, I mean, again, this is this is a civil war. This is a Soviet civil war that we're that we're witnessing. I really don't think there's any other way to to look at this. This is the civil war that Gorbachev uh, avoided by uh, dissolving the Soviet Union. But it it really wasn't avoided. It was just uh, deferred for thirty years. Well, you are a student of history, and. Uh... We're seeing mass graves. We're seeing people slaughtered, women, children, indiscriminate just because they're Ukrainian. So it's feeling a little like the start of the Holocaust to me. And it's hard for me to sit still because I always wondered what would I do. I figured I'd stand up. I'd be one of the first people targeted. But there's a lot of Nazi talk. And Russia and Putin it keeps calling Ukraine Nazis. Does he really believe that? Or what's going on with that labeling? Well, I mean, look, the the fact is uh, World War II is still very resonant in Russia. I mean, they they called it the Great Patriotic War. And uh, the Soviet Union, the Soviet people suffered terribly uh, during World War II. Frankly, they suffered even before the war, you know, under, again, Stalin's uh, mass starvation policies and whatnot. But um, you you're never going to lose any votes in uh, in Russia when you talk about uh, fighting Nazis. You know, people uh, that that strikes a chord uh, with people in the former Soviet Union. So they they have slapped that label on their opponents uh, forever for decades. They you know will call them fascist or call them a Nazi or they're denazifying or whatever any opponent. So they're very quick to to use that label. Look, I mean, are there are there uh, right-wing elements in Ukraine? Sure. I mean, are there right-wing elements in the United States and in Russia and, you know, every country? Yes. You know, to call what's happening in Ukraine denazification is a, is a terrible distortion of the reality and of history. These are not Nazis, of course, running Ukraine today. This is, you know, this is Putin cynically 
slapping that label on Zelensky and his government because uh, you know he they they are not bowing to uh, to Moscow. That's really what this is right. about. But it's Orwellian, and it really gets to me because one of my pet peeves. It's stronger than a pet peeve. Is the people who would distort history to say that progressive movements lead to Nazism when we know that Nazis came out of the political right in Germany, regardless of what their anglicized name is. Do you see what I mean? I mean, people on the left can go to communism and all that, but Nazis came from the right, from the fascist Mussolini and Hitler. Don't you agree on that? And that's why I wonder, Putin surely knows that. Does he know he's just spouting bullshit? Yeah, I mean, look again. Uh, I don't. I don't actually think that the political labels mean all that much. At the end of the day, uh, it, it's it's just about power and control. Mm. You know, whether you're a, a Nazi or you're a communist, it's it's about it's about power and control, and uh, and you know, other uh, there are other aims that you know, domination and racial purity, whatever that means, and just. It 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 is a scary time, you know, and it's it's hard to know how this can end or whether this will ever end. Uh, again, I think as long as Putin is in charge of the Kremlin, this is going to continue. We're going to be in a, some state of war for uh, for a long time to come. Right, but the media has a role, and I'm wondering what you would do if you were a Russian reporter or somebody on Radio Echo in Moscow. Now they've had to suddenly close up. Do you stay silent? Do you keep doing your job? What is, you are a reporter's reporter, a journalist, journalist. What is your obligation? What drives guys like you? You know, again, uh, if it were if it were me, if I were a Russian journalist and I were over there, I would I would do everything I could to protect my family. Uh, I might send them to the west or to the east or you know some. Some safe, some safe place, but yeah, I would, I would feel a commitment to, you know, getting out the truth, whatever that might mean. And it's difficult. It's difficult to, it's difficult to speak truth to power in this country, you know. And imagine there, where they have killed journalists. You know, um, the uh, the newspaper uh, Novaya Gazeta, which means New Gazette, new newspaper in uh, in Russia. One, uh, the editor won the or was awarded the Nobel Prize last year for, you know, his promotion of freedom of the press. They've lost something like you know five or six journalists who have been killed in Russia in the in the past few years for daring to tell the truth. It's it's a dangerous profession. Um, journalists, you know, don't win any popularity contests even in the best of times. We've been called the enemy of the people here in the United States. Well, they're called enemy of the people in Russia as well, and now they're facing fifteen-year uh, prison sentences or worse. And um, you know, to me, look, uh, th- there's a reason that our founding fathers enshrined freedom of the press in the very first amendment to the Constitution, not the second, the first, because they understood that freedom of the press is a is a pillar of a healthy, free democracy. You know, you know the words of Thomas Jefferson. If he could choose to have a government without newspapers or newspapers without a government, he wouldn't have hesitated to choose the latter. And um, and and Jefferson, by the way, was treated badly uh, by many newspapers back in the day. 
you know, they, they were all kinds of scurrilous uh, newspaper uh, newspapers back in, in, in those days. But they recognized that, you know, in the marketplace of ideas, that eventually the truth will come out and that uh, having a free press is an important part of a democracy. Again, uh, Putin understands that as well. That's why one of the first things he did was he targeted Ukraine's television towers. He clamped down on the press uh, in his country. And I, I just applaud those Ukrainians and Russians who are, are risking their lives to tell these important stories. The world needs to know. Russians need to know. Ukrainians need to know. Great reporters. History, History yeah. needs to know. Right. And the only way they'll know is if people write it down. But don't you have to pick your spots? If you were in Russia right now trying to report, would you take it on by using the word war? Or, for example, when Foreign Minister Lavrov makes a public statement yesterday, hey, we didn't even invade Ukraine. Would you report that as a lie? I, I've been impressed that most mainstream media labels Trump's claims of a rigged election to be a lie, discredited, all of that, but he keeps pounding away. Would you take, would you take that opportunity to say Lavrov told a lie, or would you, you know, choose your spots and, and make your stand on more important things? I, I, there are a lot of choices to make as a journalist, and you have to factor a lot of things in, don't you? You know, I would say a few things. I mean, number one, fortunately, we still do have freedom of the press here in the United States, and we have to fight to keep it free, but it is free. And yes, it is important to call it the way you see it. I would say that uh, in Russia, you know, sadly, they have a lot of experience in dealing with uh, an authoritarian government. And there are ways to uh, report the truth without uh, necessarily... Uh, getting yourself thrown into prison for 15 years. You know, I've been watching very closely the reporting of Novaya Gazeta, and they are no longer using the word war or invasion in their coverage, and yet they are still conveying truth in what they see. They are reporting on what's happening in Ukraine uh, without overtly violating these new, uh, these new rules. And I think that you know, many Russians are sophisticated enough to read between the lines and appreciate that, again, the truth is finding a way to get out, even, you know, if you're not overtly calling it an, an invasion or war. I mean, that, to me, uh, you, you'd need to find a way to navigate the, the system to be able to tell the important truths uh, without uh, making it easy for them to throw you in prison. You need to be artful, and you have to worry about yes. your own physical safety. I mean, weren't you afraid either the knock on the door or a bomb landing on you? Were you in a constant state of fear, and what's that like as a reporter? No, I wasn't in a constant state of fear, but there were times when I certainly was fearful for my life. I mean, I, again, was in a war zone. I um, had a... a a Russian soldier pointing a Kalashnikov, uh, you know, in my face and, you know, just uh, 10 feet away, shots uh, rang out. I mean, it's, it's, that'll, uh, that'll uh, ruin your day right there. Um, I, uh, frankly, you know, for months and months uh, after I left Chechnya, you know, I would have dreams that, you know, about being back there. It, I was in a constant state of, uh, of alertness and uh, and anxiety. It's it's tough to be in a war zone. I have 
tremendous respect for the journalists who who are serving uh, in Ukraine right now and serving as a witness to history. It's it's a tough life. But for me in Moscow, most days, no, I, I wasn't I wasn't afraid. The Russian people are are lovely. Uh, it was an interesting time. I was excited to be there. I was telling important stories. Um, but yeah, when the when the shooting starts, uh, things get real, and it's uh, it's it's a tough spot to be in. We're all learning about Ukrainian cities, but I'm thinking about Chechnya and kind of kicking myself for not getting more involved. Grozny got leveled. Tell everybody what happened there and how that may have been a precursor to what we are seeing today. Well, I think that it was. And it's uh, frankly, that was under Yeltsin. Um, Even Yeltsin at some point had his limits. So the Soviet Union was a collection of, uh, of different states that were brought under the Soviet flag. So Ukraine and Belarus and Moldova and Kazakhstan and Georgia and, and other places. Well, Russia itself is a federation of many different regions and Chechnya was conquered long ago under the czars. So, you know, after the Soviet Union fell apart, some of these uh, republics within, uh, the, so within the Russian state began agitating for independence themselves. Uh, including Chechnya. And Yeltsin said, no, I'm drawing a line here. We're not letting anybody else break away from from Russia. And he sent troops uh, down to uh, to Grozny and to Chechnya to to battle the separatists down there. And, you know, they, uh, you know, they called that their own war on terror. Uh, They they used different labels. They didn't use Nazis, you know, a Nazi label, but they used, you know, terror and terrorism as a pretext for going down there. And they just flattened uh, Grozny. They, uh, it, was, it, was, it was terrible to see. It was just uh, urban warfare. It very much feels like a precursor of what we're seeing in, uh, in these Ukrainian cities that are under assault today. I mean, they sent in tanks, they sent in helicopters, fighter jets, um, you know, all of it, artillery, it was uh, it was it was terrible to see. I'm looking for good news wherever I can find it, and the performance of Poland—that's remarkable, given their history in World War II. I mean, they were overtaken. They they just did not step up, in my judgment, the way they are now. Is that well, indicative of a, a new Eastern Europe? Uh, aren't you proud of Poland and what they're doing for Ukraine? I am. And remember, you know, a lot of people don't remember this, but you know, remember what happened in 1939 when the Germans uh, invaded Poland from the West. The Soviets invaded Poland from the East. Mm-hmm. And the two of them uh, had a non-aggression pact that they had signed. So the Soviets uh, grabbed the Baltic states and they grabbed Poland and they executed uh, many of the leading figures, uh, political and military figures in Poland at that time. So Poland also knows all too well what it looks like to be under uh, under Moscow's rule and Moscow's thumb. And um, they, you know, they treasure their freedom as well. One of the first things that they did after the Soviet Union fell apart was to uh, look west and uh, seek to become members of, uh, of the EU and of NATO. And, um, you know, when you look at the map of Europe, uh, 
NATO has expanded right up to the former, to the borders of what had been the Soviet Union. And that is, uh, you know, unacceptable to a guy like Putin. It's an insult. Um, frankly, you know, again, I'm no shrink, but uh, my guess is that Putin has concluded that if he can't be respected, that he aims to be feared. But you don't think he's losing his mind? You know, he's getting older. Some people speculate he's sick. He's been isolated. And and he clearly has these tyrannical impulses. Again, Vladimir Putin, you've studied the man more than I have. I know he's a lawyer. Did you know Zelensky's a lawyer too? That's interesting to me. But uh, I, I'm just trying to figure out if Putin is a rational actor. Is he? Well, I mean, I'm I'm again no shrink, and I'm no Putin expert, really. Uh, I I find it hard to believe that he's a madman. I I think he's a, a ruthless authoritarian who will do whatever he can to find any advantage, but. This uh, this Ukraine uh, invasion and war clearly did not go down the way he thought it would and hoped it would. I think he badly, badly miscalculated. And now I don't think he sees a way out. And uh, losing, at least losing today and pulling out, it doesn't seem to be, um, you know, an alternative that's acceptable to him. I mean, I think that the Russians will lose eventually. They can they can flatten Ukraine and still you know, they can win the battle and still lose the war. Ukrainians will never forget uh, what has happened. And um, I think Moscow eventually will pay a price, and this will further push Ukraine into the West's arms. Should we be worried about Putin flattening Denver, Colorado? Well, I mean, I certainly hope not. Um, I, mean, I, he's I don't, talking I don't nuclear. Think, what, what's that about? Well, again, I... Again, it's hard to uh, hard to predict what mm-hmm. uh, what Putin is going to do. He's already done more than I thought he would do. I find it hard to believe that uh, that he's suicidal, and it would be suicide to launch a nuclear attack uh, on the United States. I really, um, I, I, I personally am not worried that uh, that we're going to go that route. I think it's much more likely that uh, something inadvertent could happen. I mean, go back to history in World War One. You know, where we had these alliances, and um, you know, we sort of stumbled into war. I think that's really what uh, what what we should be worried about is, you know, are there are you know are there are there ways that uh, we can avoid uh, stumbling into war? I, I really am not worried about a, a Russian sneak attack uh, where he's nuking our cities. I just. I, I find that uh, that hard to even fathom. Good. And this is more of a European situation. Do you think Putin has designs on America? I doubt it. But if we get involved, and we already are involved, we're supplying weapons, and if we supply jets, as the Republicans now want us to do, everybody's worried about World War Three. Have you thought about that, Larry? What if there was fighting all over the world? How would news organizations even be capable of covering it all? Well, I mean, in some ways, uh, thanks to technology, we're more uh, capable of covering worldwide worldwide conflict than we've ever been. It's never been easier to, again, be a witness to history and share video. I mean, this, 
this this war in Ukraine is going to be the the best documented war that's ever been waged. You know, because Ukrainians have cell phones and dashboard videos and surveillance cameras and and everything else. Uh, this it, technology you you can't turn back the clock on technology and you know I and I, I, don't, I don't say this with any joy but it it would it would be it would it's never been easier to cover this kind of conflict. I know it. That's why I think the old models don't work because we're watching things every day. And I sometimes think this cannot even last through the end of the month. But other people say it's going to last 15 to 20 years. What do you think? Well, I do think that it's uh, it's going to last a long time. And again, you know, maybe if you if Putin is no longer in power, uh, things could be different. But I think as long as he's uh, calling the shots at the Kremlin, that uh there's going to be conflict with uh, between Russia and Ukraine, and that's going to continue for years. You run the best news outlet in all of Colorado, the Colorado Sun. How are you handling this situation, and do you worry that it is knocking other important stories off the front page? No, I mean, look, this is this is important news. In the Colorado Sun, we focus on what's happening in Colorado, and um, we understand that you know if you're looking for news about what's happening in, in Ukraine or in Moscow, that you have many choices for that, whether that's, you know, the Wall Street Journal or the New York Times or the Washington Post or, you know, other uh, other publications, other networks and whatnot. You know, we have a lot of things, important things going on in Colorado. And we're trying to focus on that as well. But, we, you know, we're human. You know, we, we know people. I know people in Ukraine. And uh, I'm doing what I can. I've been mentoring a group of Ukrainians uh, for months, Ukrainian journalists, and I'm wishing them well and their families and trying to help them in any way that I can. We've written about the experience uh, of Ukrainians uh, in Colorado. So, you know, I'm not I'm not worried. I mean, the, the, the world should be paying attention to what's happening in, in Ukraine. But I, I think we can also pay attention to the important things that are happening here in the United States. We've got, uh, you know, uh, important midterm elections that will be coming up later this year. We've got uh, Supreme Court ruling uh, that uh, could overturn Roe v. Wade uh, later this year. We've got the climate crisis. We've got water issues. We've got all kinds of things that are important to Coloradans. And, you know, frankly, we're seeing a lot of engagement from Colorado readers. And, you know, we'll do our best to uh, to tell the important stories in Colorado that, that we need to know about. And we've got Tina Peters, too. So... What a story that is. It's it's unbelievable. But I think that is big because we'll see if the court system can work. I predicted that long ago in a Colorado Sun column that eventually we are going to win through the courts. I think the legal system has its role to play, but the media has never been more important on a local level and on a world level. And yet you guys have gone through such upheaval just with the economy and the new media. What do you see for the future of journalism, and are you optimistic? And how is it that the Colorado Sun succeeds where others are failing? Well, I am optimistic about the future. Uh, I mean, look, it's a, it's it's always been a tough business uh, being in newspapers and being in journalism, um, but it's never been more important. Again, I'll go back to the founding fathers. There's a reason that the freedom of the press is enshrined in the First Amendment. It is a foundational piece of a healthy democracy. This work is important. We need to know how can we expect to be um, informed voters if we don't have access to trusted 
information. And the Colorado Sun, you know, we we created the Colorado Sun uh, three and a half years ago because uh, we felt that Colorado needed and deserved um, the kind of quality news that we can produce. Now, frankly, uh, we've seen hedge funds, including the the owner of the Denver Post. Hedge funds have uh, closed and uh, squeezed and uh, reduced newsrooms from coast to coast. And uh, we all suffer when there's less journalism. You know, we'll never know the many stories that aren't being told because there weren't reporters there to to tell those stories, to to hold the powerful accountable, to celebrate the good things that are being done in our communities. You know, these are the things that that tie us together in a community. And these are the these are the things that we lose when journalism goes away. What I can say is that I've seen since we created the Colorado Sun three and a half years ago that uh, Coloradans have responded to uh, the nonpartisan independent journalism that we produce. We have more than 200,000 newsletter subscribers now. Uh, we have more than 16,000 paying members who have you know, joined our effort to create this new business model that is all about Colorado. We're a public benefit corporation. We're doing this for the state of Colorado. And I'm actually very encouraged that there are so many people who have joined with us and understand the importance of a free press. Everybody should go to coloradosun.com, make a contribution. But what I like is there's not a paywall. You can see the news and you get contributions from all sorts of people. And the corporations like Alden Capital, which have tried to ruin news in Colorado, they're kind of doing Putin's job for them, for uh for him, you know, suppressing free speech. And as I've tried to put my thoughts together, Larry, these people who are on the side of Putin and Russia, wow. And and I'm just thinking, if you want to know who's the good guy and who's the bad guy in a conflict, look at which guy gives freedom of the press more so than the other. I'm sure things aren't perfect in Ukraine, but it's fair to say that when it comes to Ukraine and Russia— just examine the way they treat the media, and that's a big clue as to who's in the right and who's in the wrong. Yeah, I think that's a fair point. Again, um, you know, you cannot have uh, democracy without a free press. So, you know, you need to look at uh, at who is trying to clamp down. And um, I think you can make some good judgments uh, on that basis alone. I know Putin has cracked down, but I, I'm no expert on Ukraine. And maybe I'm romanticizing Zelensky in Ukraine. But do they value press freedom more than Russia does? Well, certainly today and, and even before this invasion. But uh, it's remarkable to see how quickly things can change. Um, I mean, again, we've heard calls in this country to crack down on freedom of, of the press, to have tougher laws. Um, you know, targeting uh, targeting journalists. And we have seen just with breathtaking speed, uh, Putin and the Kremlin roll back press f- press freedoms uh, in, in Russia. It's It's just been stunning to see. Right. I've seen that ranking, and that's before Putin's cracked down. America barely cracks the top 50 in terms of freedom of the press. And then Ukraine's in the top 100. Russia's about 150 and dropping. So you are such a valuable resource, Larry Rickman. I cannot thank you enough for your insights. I'll give you the last word. What should we be thinking about Russia and Ukraine? What are things that you think 
uh, maybe the average person is missing? Well, you know, I'm 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 an irrepressible optimist, uh, as you know, but it's hard to be optimistic when when looking at what's happening in Ukraine. Uh, I really I don't think that there's a, a good way out for Putin, and he seems to be all in. I'm I'm really afraid for what's going to happen to Ukraine and Zelensky uh, in the coming days uh, and weeks. You know, what's going to be interesting to see is, you know, whether the uh, whether the sanctions that the West has imposed and whether the military aid that the West is offering to Ukraine will really have any impact. I, I just, I don't think there's any stopping Putin at this point. And uh, it's a, it's a tragedy for Russia. It's a tragedy for Ukraine and the rest of the world. Here's my optimism. Based on our conversation, I think that evil people have a plan, maybe even conspire together, but the people get in the way, just like in the last election. No, Donald Trump, you don't get a second term. And Putin may have his plans, but the people of Ukraine have gotten in the way. They say, no, you're not going to roll over us. Again, people standing up. And you're letting me know that people in Russia have gotten a taste of the Western world, and they're going to feel the squeeze of these sanctions. I do believe it, and the oligarchs may get upset. So I'm counting on the people again, the people of Russia. Is that a false hope? No, I, I hope you're right. I mean, honestly, I've seen it myself. I've you know, attended uh, demonstrations, protests in Moscow with hundreds of thousands of people, and you know, people have done this before. They could do it again. It's just uh, a question of whether or not, uh, you know, they'll decide to take up the cause. I really think Putin has miscalculated in so many ways that, you know, I, I don't think this war in Ukraine is going to be popular when your average Russian really understands what's going on. And, you know, if, the, if there is cause for optimism, it's it's in that, that eventually Russians are going to be ashamed of what's happened and what's been done you know, under the Russian flag. May Putin meet as Waterloo. We won't get into Napoleon, but the guy is pretty short. Anyway, Larry, cannot thank you enough. Really valuable talk. I appreciate it. Many thanks, Craig. Appreciate it. Bye, Larry. Bye. Thank you. It's hot in here. Did that toaster catch on fire? It wasn't that. You choked on that bite of burnt bagel. Why is everything all red? The heat is unbearable. Where am I? Excuse me, your dishonor. May I step in on behalf of my client? Mr. Silverman, proceed. Tell me one redeeming good thing your client did. He was a faithful listener to my radio show. Not good enough. He had decency and compassion for his family. He did end-of-life planning with Michael Bailey. The Michael Bailey? That is kind to your loved ones. That is smart and way too decent for this place. Your client can go. And what about me, your despicableness? Why should I? Michael Bailey is my lawyer, too. Go on, then. Get out of here. <laughs> now, part of that was serious, and part of that was fictional. But you will die someday, and if you don't make a legal plan, the government will make one for you. Call my lawyer, Michael Bailey. His rates are reasonable, and he can meet with you and your spouse wherever you want, and on weekends and evenings. 720-394-6887 or online at MBLaw LLC.com. Now back to the Fred Silverman Show. Okie dokie. It's one of my favorite parts of this show where I bring you sound of the week, including right-wing media watch. But first, let's start with some humor. 
I like humor. How about you? I had the honor of being at Blake Street Tavern for a tremendous Les Shapiro Memorial, and they asked me to say a few words, and here is a good memory I had of Les. Of course, I need to get a little political. And when I think about Les, I think about Blake Street because for some wonderful years, right before when Dan and I were doing his show, I got a press pass and I'd go to sports events and I'd hang out with Les Shapiro at the Broncos and at the Rockies. Who remembers a left-handed pitcher for the Rockies named Drew Pomerantz? Do you remember Drew? Big guy. Turns out he's from Mississippi, but we didn't know anything about him. 6'5", 240, and he pitched a hell of a game. His opening game was a Sunday just like this, September 11, 2011. And he was on a pitch count. He pitched five innings. The Rockies beat Cincinnati 4-1. to It was probably the highlight of his career because he ended up going 4-14 and for the Rockies. Although he was 17-6 and for the Red Sox in 2017. But back to 2011, Les and I are in the locker room waiting to do the interview. And I said to Les, Pomerantz. Now, I know some people named Pomerantz. That's a Jewish name. Do you think this guy's a member of our tribe? (laughs) And Les, I swear, without missing a beat, he says to me, Keep your eyes wide open when he comes out of the shower, Craig. (laughs) Turned out that uh, if you spell it with an A-N-Z, it's different than A-N-T-Z. And there aren't a lot of Jews in Mississippi, as it turns out, but... You know where there are a lot of Jews? In the Ukraine. And, you know, just when we're out of the pandemic and we think nothing to worry about, a lot of us are thinking about it. We know our friend Les Shapiro would have been thinking about a brave Jewish guy, little guy, named Volodymyr Zelensky. And I know he'd be thinking about it because I talked to his good friend, Chris. Chris Fusley, who is now... Did you know he's a lawyer too, Chris? Yeah, he is. Chris and I agreed that Les would have been real proud of Volodymyr Zelensky and that Les would be quite concerned about Ukraine and he'd be hating on Putin. And I hope we all are. Les Shapiro was a great guy. He spoke out. So did Chris Fuselay, my guest last week in Craig's Lawyer's Lounge. And you know, if you've been listening, that I really disdain certain right-wingers. And I have a segment called Right-Wing Media Watch. Right-Wing Media Watch. Right-Wing Media Watch. This week, I feature Matt Dunn and Backbone Radio on Denver Trump Radio 710 KNUS. But first... Some of these right-wingers get recorded when they least expect it. Madison Cawthorn is a representative from North Carolina in the United States Congress. He is a white power dude. He is aligned with Marjorie Taylor Greene, Lauren Boebert, and Donald J. Trump. He is a big lie guy. 
He's one of the Trump enforcers, and he, along with his boss, they're leading the charge against a modern Western hero, a Jewish man, Volodymyr Zelensky. And I don't much like that. Send stinger missiles over to them so they can defend themselves better. But remember that Zelensky is a thug. Remember that the Ukrainian government is incredibly corrupt and it is incredibly evil and it has been pushing woke ideologies and it really does the new woke world. Wow, how many insults could he get in there? Calling Zelensky a thug, Ukraine evil and corrupt, and then bringing in woke ideologies, the culture war, don't you know? Putin's against abortion. Zelensky may be pro-choice. And we know gay rights. Putin hates that. Ukraine's more modern. Here's Zelensky giving an interview to Vice News. This guy's my inspiration. Listen to Volodymyr Zelensky, president of Ukraine. Can you make a compromise with Putin? Can you trust Putin? Trust? Oh, no, I trust only my family. How can you make a deal with somebody you don't trust then? We have to. We have to. Because to stop this war, how to stop this war? Only dialogue. And only dialogue with him. He is the president of Russia and Russia. Oh, fighting against Ukraine, they came to our land, to our houses, and to our children. We we didn't we didn't invite them. Yes, we didn't invite them, but they but they are uh, here. What would be your your message to President Vladimir Putin right now? Right now, right now, stop the war. Begin to speak. That's it. And what if he doesn't? I think he will. I think he will. I think he sees that we are strong. He will. We need some time. Let's thank God that Volodymyr Zelensky has lived another week. May he live to a ripe old age. He gave a hell of a speech at Parliament. You know, Winston Churchill lived a pretty long time. Why not Zelensky? Please, Lord, listen to his stirring words. Referencing Churchill at the British Parliament. This is something you never hear played on Denver Trump radio. I wonder why. Where was this on Fox News? Why not feature this all the time? It inspires Ukraine. It inspires the UK. It should inspire us as well. But Donald Trump is leading a charge against Zelensky. Who will win that battle? Well, you can't win if you are dead. Let's pray for Zelensky. Here he is at Parliament. And I would like to remind you the words that the United Kingdom have already heard, and which are important again. We will not give up and we will not lose. We will fight till the end at sea, in the air. We will continue fighting for our land, whatever the cost. We will fight in the forests, in the fields, on the shores, in the streets. I would like to add that we will fight uh, on the on the banks of different rivers like Dnieper and we will we are looking for your help for the help of the civilized countries. We are, we are thankful for this help and we and I'm, I'm very grateful to you, Boris. 
please increase the pressure of sanctions against this uh, country and please recognize this country as a terrorist state and please make sure that our Ukrainian skies are safe. Please make sure that you do what needs to be done and what is stipulated by the greatness of your country. Best of all to Ukraine and uh, to the United Kingdom. Zelensky is a great man. Donald Trump, one of the worst ever. I could play you a lot of sound of Trump. He was on Hannity who offered him softballs. Hey, just say Putin is evil. He would not say it. He will not condemn Putin or Russia. And you just need to look at right-wing media, big lie media, and see that they are supporting this attack on Zelensky. They are going to be on Putin's side, and I could see the strategy all the way. And part of it is political, to get white males to vote for Trump. He goes on shows like Full Send Podcast, which is popular young person's show, podcast. The Nelk guys, I think that's their name. They have some Denver connections. They went to Mar-a-Lago, and one of them was funny. He says, hey, Donnie, what do you think about this and that? And they had to take it off YouTube because he spouts that bullshit big lie. The election was rigged. And guess what? If he takes over like Putin, that's going to be mandatory words. You will go to jail for 15 years unless you agree he got cheated in 2020, don't you know? That's the kind of autocrat asshole this guy is who, when he's asked a good question by these guys about Ukraine, he changes the subject so he doesn't have to condemn Putin, his pal, his fellow tyrant, his fellow mobster. Uh, it would have never happened. And we did talk about it. I mean, he definitely wanted Ukraine, loved Ukraine, would never have happened. What do you see happening next then? Because it seems like the tensions are high. What? How does this all end? Is this going to be like a long-term thing? How do you see it unfolding? Well, I, and I said this a long time ago, if this happens, uh, we are... Uh, playing right into their hands, green energy, the windmills, they don't work. They're too expensive. They kill all the birds. They ruin your landscapes. And yet the environmentalists love the windmills. And I've been preaching this for years, the windmills, and I had them way down, but the windmills are the most expensive energy you can have. Uh, and they don't work. And by the way, they last a period of 10 years. And by the time they start rusting and rotting all over the place, nobody ever takes them down. They just go onto the next piece of prairie or land and destroy that. It's incredible that they want, but other forms of uh, green energy, they don't have. And now here comes the worst of right-wing media watch. I could play him all the time. He puts out about three podcasts a day, pure Trump, Putin propaganda. Steve Bannon, who says that Ukraine should get zero dollars, which is the amount that Lauren Boebert voted for her. That's the master of Lauren Boebert and Randy Corcoran and Tina Peters. You know, Randy Corcoran's apparently representing Tina Peters. Good luck with that. She smuggles in a guy with false identification tag. How are you going to defend against that? Oh, I got confused. I thought they had the same name. Maybe something can happen, but I like the prosecution chances in Mesa County. Bannon is the chief propagandist for these guys. No Republican 
should vote for any money for Ukraine. Zero dollars for Ukraine. As much as your heart wants to help the poor women and children who are bombed and shelled every day, right? That picture right there in the New York Times. The horrible agony of the Ukrainian people. Not one penny. I hate to be an adult, but when I was a child, I thought like a child. Now I'm a man. you got to think like it. Until we get a full briefing and disclosure of exactly what is going on with facts. Bannon is a propagandist up there with Goebbels, and there are experts on autocracies, totalitarianism, fascism, tyrants, Ruth Ben-Ghiat. She is amazing. She was on the Kremlin File podcast, and she talked about how enforcers, I call them Trump enforcers, they are a key part of how autocrats come to rule, and boy, are they cracking a whip in the Republican Party. Listen to this expert on autocracy. It's information warfare for a reason. It's warfare. And so threatening and intimidating. And and it's the same even with like individual, like, you know, commentators, even someone like me. If you get some people will say, well, it's not worth doing this because I'm tired of getting hate mails and tired of having stalkers and this and that. And and so it trickles down even to you know, small individual players who are trying to shed light um, on how this is working. I'm one such small individual player, and so are you who listen. We are screaming about it, and we will continue to do so. But what happens when the enforcers get more violent, more intimidating? And that's the point Ruth Ben-Ghiad is making. People leave the battle. What's the point? People give up hope. What is the future of the Republican Party with Tina Peters, Randy Corcoran, people like that in charge? Feckless people on air who are Republicans who won't call them out? I don't really think there is a future for the GOP unless, well, listen to Ruth on this subject because autocrats, they can be stopped but I don't see many people with that kind of gumption in the modern GOP. You need a, an alternate leader to come forth who's more moderate and give um, and give a dynamism to the people. Because what you see in the history of autocracy is that people seem to be oriented one way, but as soon as somebody, there's thing, a thing called elite defection that happens if they think rulers are going down, then they very quickly, because they're transactional too, if they had another center of gravity, they, they, there might be movement in this way. But Trump, the thing about the authoritarian discipline on the party is that nobody can emerge. So you have people like DeSantis who are trying. Um, he's equal, but he's equally, he's making Florida into a little autocracy. So he's not the answer. So it could be that they have to go through this phase and, and they will wreak so much destruction on America that, Perhaps that is what will be needed to rebirth something else out of this party. Because you can't have a third party. We're very, we're very, uh, it's a problem that we don't have multiple parties like other countries. Because there, there's much more flexibility. You can band together and form an opposite. Like what's going on in Hungary is going on in Serbia. We can't do that. So that's a structural problem that we have that other countries don't have. So I don't right now, as long as Trump has his iron grip, I don't see 
um, that future. If Trump gets prosecuted, prosecution's the answer. Uh, lock him up, <laughs> and and yeah, and then that creates a space. That creates a yeah. space for yeah. something new to happen in the party, but we're not there yet. Now there's a hopeful note. Lock him up. Prosecution is the answer. And we don't have to make up charges. The crimes were committed. Come on, DOJ. But I can't help but think that these two mobsters are working together. And Ukraine is timed to steal the attention from the January 6th Select Committee that is exposing all the ways Trump is guilty, the revelations about John Eastman, uh, exchanging emails with Greg Jacob, attorney for Mike Pence. There's another great podcast. It's called Opening Argument that breaks that down. But I'd like to focus on these experts who help us understand the situation. So many of them are bright women. I love Marie Ivanovich. Don't have sound of her today, but she was on with Stephen Colbert and uh, also on MSNBC. She looks good. She's smart. She's brave. So is Fiona Hill. I followed that first impeachment because I could see the importance, even if none of my radio colleagues would acknowledge it. More about that you will hear in a bit. But Fiona Hill, she was tremendous. And she was on Ezra Klein's podcast, and she gave an education. Please listen to her about what's motivating Putin as he battles this little Russian-speaking Jew who's blowing Putin's mind, Volodymyr Zelensky. He seems to understand Ukraine is full of Russians. I mean, of course, it does have many people who are part of Russia, who speak Russian, who uh, identify as more ethnically Russian. But he does, he seems to have vastly overestimated the potency and ubiquity of that identity, such that he seemed to believe he'd get a lot less resistance than he has. But also, his fear, as far as I can tell from some of his speeches, is not just that Ukraine is going to fall into a NATO security umbrella, but that there's going to be a westernization or even a Ukrainianization of the identity of the Ukrainian people. And once that is done, then Russia can't get them back because then you are just occupying a land, not reintegrating with your brothers and sisters. And that seems very important in his thinking and also to have been very wrong in a way that now, if anything, he's made it even worse, right? I mean, nothing has done more for Ukrainian identity than this invasion. But I'm, I'm curious what you think of that because he talks about it a lot, but I don't hear it discussed very often. Ezra, you're spot on. So it's very possible to be living in Ukraine and be somebody like Volodymyr Zelensky. Vladimir being a name that would suggest, uh, you know, Ukrainian nationalist version of Vladimir, by the way, after the great grandparents of Kiev that Putin's also fighting over. It's being fought over the, the versions of the name. Vladimir, Ukrainian version, Vladimir, the Russian version. And Putin is, you know, it's a battle of the Vladimirs and the Vladimirs. Vladimir Zelensky also happens to be a Russian-speaking Jew. And I think he's blowing Putin's mind because in that kind of capacity, he can't figure him out. He's trying to say that Ukrainians are being led by a bunch of, this is bizarre labelling, drug-addled neo-Nazi fascists. Well, it's a little hard to say that about um, somebody who's completely sober, very clearly, Volodymyr Zelensky, and happens to be Jewish and who has lost family in the Holocaust and is very proud of his Jewish identity as well as Ukrainian identity and his identity as a Russian speaker. 
And this is the problem that everybody is falling into in the modern era right now. Putin has been trying to put himself forward in many respects as the kind of leader, not just of the Slavic part of the world, the Russian part of the world, this idea of Ruski Mir, all of uh, the Russian speakers who are scattered around, not just Ukraine, but also Belarus and uh, northern parts of Kazakhstan and elsewhere in the former Soviet uh, Republic or the Russian diaspora abroad, which he reaches out to. But he's got this idea of a kind of a white Christian Russian Orthodox, you know, Russia uh, that is leading then, you know, the kind of peoples who are opposed to these other kinds of identity politics. So he's right there in the middle of it. And I think he's talked himself in to that idea that there can only be one particular form of identity. And just as you say, I think the main impetus for this is he saw that Ukraine was moving away. So what we're seeing here is almost, in a way, a kind of a battle for people to be able to espouse their own identities as complex as they may be, because Ukraine is full of people from all kinds of different backgrounds. There are many Ukrainians, ethnic Ukrainians in Russia, but who would be Russian-speaking. There are millions of Ukrainian citizens working in Russia, and there are lots of people in Ukraine who speak Russian but now feel a very strong identity tied to place and to history and shared culture, especially for the last 30 years. They don't want to go back to whatever version of Ukraine or multiple versions of Ukraine, because it seems that Vladimir Putin wants to carve the whole country up, that he is presenting to them. They want the right to decide for themselves. I think Ukraine should have the right to decide for themselves. I've decided for myself that Backbone Radio Sunday nights at 710 KNUS may be the most radical show in Colorado. First of all, it has a host, Matt Dunn, who is ostensibly normal. A father, a husband, lives in the suburbs, he's a dentist. But my gosh, you examine his positions, it's white power bullshit. And he's on every Sunday night, and now he's taking shots at Zelensky and Ukraine when they are being besieged. This is my feature on Right Wing Media Watch. Matt Dunn, let's hear some of your disparagement, Tucker Carlson style, against Zelensky and Ukraine. Hey, I'm just asking questions. I'm just spewing that pro-Trump propaganda same shit I read on the Gateway Pundit, all those sources. And Salem Media puts it on the radio every Sunday night. Talking Ukraine, I'll be off to the phones in just a moment to just work in a little bit of this uh, opening monologue for an hour here. And um, I would say this, there is something rotten about Ukraine, all right? There is something weird about Ukraine that we haven't had a journalist really dial in, put a finger on, or assess in detail. And a fellow named Josh Hammer writes this in the American Greatness publication. He says, quote, It seems there is something fundamentally rotten about modern Ukraine that no enterprising investigative journalist has yet uncovered. And he throws in some, some info about Ukraine by saying this, At the time of Ukraine's 2014 color revolution, which was itself clandestinely abetted by liberal NGO types in America. But at the time of Ukraine's 2014 color revolution, which deposed the pro-Russian president Viktor Yanukovych, the nation ranked as one of the absolute most corrupt nations in the world. There are neo-Nazi paramilitary units, such as the Azov Battalion, active in Ukraine. Ukraine, lest amnesiac Westerners forget 
is also the country of Hunter Biden and Burisma. Ukrainian oligarch Viktor Pinchuk was for years a massive donor to the Clinton Foundation. And Zelensky himself, of course, was at the center of President Donald Trump's first entirely bogus impeachment. There's a lot of weird stuff about Ukraine. Why has Ukraine popped up in both impeachments, actually? Why did Vindman, the Ukrainian, pop up during that bogus impeachment nonsense? Why was Hunter making money hand over fist out of Ukraine and Burisma? Why are liberal NGOs sprinkled all throughout Ukraine? And why is George Soros so involved in Ukraine? Yeah, why? And why is Hillary Clinton so involved? How much money has Hillary Clinton received from Ukraine to her Clinton Foundation, which they've just started up again, by the way? And here's Hillary. We have to also make sure that within our own country, uh, we are calling out those people uh, who are giving aid and comfort to Vladimir Putin, who are talking about what a genius he is, what a smart move it is, uh, who are unfortunately uh, being broadcast uh, by Russian uh, media, uh, not only inside Russia, but in uh, Europe to demonstrate the division within our own country. There you go. Hillary Clinton, George Soros, corporate media, the neoconservatives, David Frum, Bill Kristol, Adam Kinzinger. Yeah, they're all up for World War III. What is it about Ukraine, folks? What is it? What has been going on there? What has been up with all the money laundering? That has ended up in the hands of Western elites like Hunter Biden. And then listen to a caller who was actually in Ukraine. It saw a democracy, a beautiful thing, sprout out of the Soviet Union as they got rid of Putin's puppet, Manafort's man. And Matt Dunn's going to argue with this guy saying half the people in Ukraine love Russia. Bullshit. Zelensky wasn't really popularly elected. Bullshit, Matt Dunn. Maybe you're an anti-Semite. Maybe you're a white power guy. Could that be the case? I'm just asking questions. The people in, in the Ukraine do not want to be subjugated by Russia. Well, and, um, that would probably be a certain percentage of them, um, but probably the ones who are more, you know, Russia's like a half-and-half okay. half state, right? But by the way, no, you know, do you, do you no, really no, think... Matt, but no, think think about You're, Zelensky. Do you, do you think that when he came into office that that had nothing to do with the United States State Department and CIA helping get him in place? Do you really think he's an independent outsider? I think he was a he was kind of like Trump. He was not expected to win. He's kind of like a dark horse on this whole thing. Um, he just he you know what his his platform was getting rid of corruption and finally getting negotiating a peace with Putin. That was his platform. And um, you have to remember this, Matt. Um, he speaks better uh, Russian than he does speak uh, Ukrainian. Matter of fact, most of the people there speak better Russian than they do. Right. Speak, and your uh, wife Ukrainian. is uh, Ukrainian also? That's correct. That's correct. And by the way, I, fact, I just don't buy it, by the way, that Zelensky is some just outsider who cruised into victory. Our main focus this week is on disinformation. When legitimate press has to go underground or leave the country, what is left? Just propaganda. And it affects families. We've seen that in America. Imagine in Putin's Russia. 
where the people are deprived of information. And there was this amazing story on CNN. Ties in with our song this week, My Dad, where a Ukrainian restaurateur, Misha Katsarin, is trying to tell his dad in Russia, hey, you guys are bombing us, but the dad won't believe it. Listen to this conversation on New Day with host John Berman on CNN. U.S. officials estimate up to 4,000 Russians have been killed in the invasion of Ukraine. Yet yep, Russian propaganda insists on downplaying the severity, banning calling it an invasion or a war. They say it's a special military operation. The question has been, do the Russians buy it? So this morning we have something of an answer uh, of how this works. Joining me is Misha Katsirin. He's an intern appeal in Ukraine right now. And Misha, your father is in Russia. And after days of bombing and days of this invasion, you were wondering why he hadn't called to check on you in Ukraine. So you finally got him on the phone. What did he say? Hija, that was like the common conversation. Hi, how are you doing? So any word about war? And I asked him, do you know what's going on? And he said, yes, I've heard something. And I started to tell him, uh, how are my things and things of my family? I told him that we woke up from the bombing and that I took my like little son who is eight months old and uh, we tried to like um, to escape and uh, to save the family. And uh, he started to argue. He said, no, 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 everything is not like this. And um, he told me that the Russia started like a peaceful operation and they're trying to save us from the Nazi regime, which occupied our country. And uh, the most interesting thing was uh, that the Russian soldiers are giving uh, to the local people food and warm clothes. So that's the thing he saw on the TV. And they said, no, father, now I'm here. I see what's going on. My friends also see what's going on. Um, and uh, he just could not believe in this. So um, I spent maybe five minutes trying to talk to him. And then I just say goodbye. Sorry. <laughs> so that was the first conversation. Wow. Misha Katsarin is more understanding of his father than maybe I would be or you would be, but you can't yell because he has been exposed to this propaganda. It's rotting relationships in Russia and Ukraine and in America, too. We need honest information, and yet we've got guys like Matt Dunn putting out their bullshit putting putting out his propaganda. Listen to Misha Katsarin finish up the conversation and how it's led to a worldwide movement that will hopefully yield something great. You say, Dad, they're bombing us. And he says, no, 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 yes. that's not what's happening. No, 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 no. Everything, yeah, so he, he just cannot believe in this reality. So they exist in another reality, which was created for like 20 years. And you know, when the, like um, each day on the TV, in newspapers, on like federal radio, and there are no free uh, medias in Russia, they like um, got the information that the tree behind them is red. And then I call him and said, no, father, the tree is green. He just cannot believe. He wants to believe me, but he cannot. Did you get through to him at all? Do you think after your discussion, he had a sense you were being bombed and invaded? So um, that was like the uh, some way. So after I finished this discussion, I made a post in Instagram that my father does not believe me. And uh, 
there was more than 135,000 shares of this post. So uh, I realized that the problem is super widespread. Uh, like uh, there was uh, like thousands and thousands of comments and all the people wrote that I have the same thing. My mother does not believe me. My sister doesn't believe me. My uncle does not believe me. And I realized, realized that this is like a huge, huge, huge problem. And uh, we gathered with my colleagues and we created their website, which uh, is called Father Believe. On this website we like try to uh, to offer to people to call their relatives and to tell them the truth and we like uh, write down all the main questions of the russian propaganda and the answers of these questions because the most easy thing is to like say okay i don't have father because that's very stressful when your closest people does not believe uh, you you start to scream you start to become super angry and uh, in this thing i like realized that i need to become i need to be smart and i need to call him again and again and again and and to help him because like imagine right now uh russia closed instagram they closed facebook they closed tiktok so there is the only way to get information like from the federal channels and that's why right now relatives are the i think the only media which can like tell them some um, other side of the information uh, and there are like more than 11 millions of relatives in russia right now so yeah. just imagine uh, if we will like tell the truth to them and they will tell the truth to like two of their friends that will be 33 million of people who will know the truth that's like, uh, that's the huge power. Well, we open this segment with a joke, and I'd like to leave with a little levity. That's what Jews are known for, right? Senses of humor, Fiddler on the Roof, mixed comedy with tragedy and beautiful music. And he gave us a prayer for the Tsar. That's the way they called it in Fiddler on the Roof. T-S-A-R, Tsar. I think that's Yiddish for the bad guy that Putin is, the autocrat, the totalitarian, the guy who can decide to persecute Jews just because he wants to or persecute Ukrainians just because he wants to. Women, children, what do we want from a Tsar? Keep him the hell away from us. Most important of all, our beloved rabbi. Rabbi, may I ask you a question? Certainly, Labish. Is there a proper blessing for the Tsar? A blessing for the Tsar, of course. May God bless and keep the Tsar far away from us. I love the spirit of my people, and here's Perchik, the wise guy in Fiddler on the Roof, who can read a newspaper to people who otherwise can't read. And he has to tell them, look out, they're coming for our homes. What is the reason? There is no reason. You've got a madman. History is repeating. Let's advance. Well, I was reading my paper. Is nothing very important, a story about the crops in the Ukraine and this and that. Avram. Oh. And then I saw this. All right. We all see it. 
what does it say? In a village called Rajenka, all the Jews were evicted, forced to leave their homes. For what reason? It doesn't say. Maybe the Tsar wanted their land, maybe a plague. May the Tsar have his own personal plague. Amen. <laughs> What's the matter with you? Why don't you ever bring us some good news? It's not my fault. I only read it. We can do better, folks. We need to absorb the news, convince our friends, fire up democracy, and defeat autocracy. That's our Shabbat prayer. Thanks for listening to this edition of Right Wing Media Watch that did not include just right wing sound. It included some people making points about why this right wing propaganda is terrible. Thanks for listening. Hey, maybe you know my voice and me from the first half of my career when I was Denver prosecutor, or maybe you know me from my time on the radio and now on my podcast. But my real job for several decades now has been to fight in the civil arena for victims of crimes. I've been fighting for Colorado crime victims for the last four decades. If your life has been damaged through the misconduct of others, there's a great new Colorado law, and it's for you. It allows victims as far back as January 1, 1960 to hold accountable the perpetrators and the organizations that allowed it to happen. If you were sexually assaulted, now is the time to come forward. Let's expose the truth. Let's get you some justice. Let me be your voice for a confidential consultation. Call me anytime you are ready at 303-861-2800. Ask for Craig, Craig Silverman, a voice for victims. Craig? Hello, Ann. Thanks for coming on my podcast. You're welcome. You are a fascinating character. I got to know you at the Rocky Mountain News where you were for, what, a decade and a half? Loved the Rocky Mountain News. But yes. before that, you uh, grew up somewhere, became a journalist somehow, learned how to speak Russian, and had an exciting adventure and career. That's the part we want to talk about, Han, because a lot of us are worried about Russia its invasion of Ukraine, press freedoms, all of that, and you are perfect. Tell everybody about yourself, where you grew up, and how you became a great journalist. <laughs> well, I was born in Wisconsin and uh, got a degree in Russian studies and journalism from the University of Washington in Seattle, and then a master's in journalism from Columbia University in New York. And I always wanted to be a Moscow court responded. Uh, and everyone told me, go away and come back when you have 10 years of experience at major journalism outlets. <clears throat> so after 10 years, uh, things changed in Russia, and I got wind that they were planning major reforms beyond what Gorbachev had already started with opening things up as far as talking. And they were planning to put in free elections and um, uh, open up freedoms and that kind of thing. So, um, and I heard about this actually at a conference in California, which brought together leading young American and Soviet leaders every year. 
and I happened to cover it and came back and my editors were like, yeah, right. <laughs> this is really going to happen. And uh, I said, you know, these people are central committee. They know what they're talking about. So my husband said, you know, if you're ever going to go to Russia, this would be the time. And so I went and applied to everybody who had a Russian correspondent and um, got a job with the Associated Press, just as the most important of Gorbachev's reforms were starting in 1988. And I stayed through the end of the Soviet Union. Oh, my gosh. And did your husband go with you? Yes, he was a news photographer. And uh, he worked for the AP at first and eventually for basically every uh, English language um, media outlet in Russia or, or English language um, correspondent in Russia for foreign correspondents. We didn't really have an English language outlet at the time. And, um, and many of the foreign ones, because, of course, if you're a photographer, you don't have to translate your work. Gosh, what an adventure. Let's get our timing straight. What year did you graduate at Washington? Um, 1974. Okay. See, I graduated in 78, and I studied Soviet Union in America, and I was fascinated, but I never thought about going to Moscow to be a reporter there. <laughs> Didn't you think that might be dangerous? Uh I, well, I was a student at Leningrad State University in the 70s, uh, really? exchange, and I was one of the first exchange students. Um, Isn't that where Putin got his law degree, Leningrad State? It could very well be. It's I the major so. university there. And um, I had a great time. I learned a lot. Uh, I saw what life was really like and and that Russia was made up of people who were very smart and very talented and they had terrific resources and they lived in poverty. And I figured it was all going to come falling down someday. And I wanted to be there when it did and tell the story. You have a lot of courage and you are a great reporter. And I know you play it straight as you lived that life. I assume you lived in Moscow. And uh, is that the right way to say it? Moscow or Moscow? Uh, either way, that's the English pronunciation. Uh, Russian is Moskva. And uh, at what age did you learn how to speak Russian? Uh, in college, actually. That's quite a commitment. And do you still speak it today? Do you follow Russian media? I am very rusty. Um, at one point, I could give a two-hour lecture on the First Amendment in Russian, and that would be tough today, but I've been listening to a lot of Russian in the last few weeks uh, since the invasion of Ukraine began. And uh, it's coming back. It's uh, it's not gone. Hey, if you're going to start, if you're going to start telling jokes, you have to warn me because that was a pretty good <laughs> pun when you said I'm very rusty. <laughs> I mean. You are a wordsmith in English and probably in Russian. What about your Ukrainian? Can you speak that too? Uh, no, but I um, can understand some of it. Um, it's very closely related to Russian. The spelling's a bit different. Uh, it's easier to pick it out if it's written than spoken. Um, but some people like Zelensky are very, very clear um, 
and in both Russian and Ukrainian, and uh, it's pretty easy to understand him. What do you think of that guy? He is an amazing character. Um, I would urge everybody who's listening to this to check out Servant of the People on Netflix, because that is his comedy show, where before he became president, he played a teacher in Ukraine who uh, ranted about corruption on the internet and was elected president of Ukraine. And then the whole show is about uh, him trying to uh, defeat the corrupt Ukrainian government and society. And uh, it's not easy. And then a few years after this, he and this show actually became a hit both in Ukraine and Russia. So he is a TV star in Russia as well as Ukraine. And um, now, when they broadcast started- when they broadcasted in Russia, did they have to dub over it uh, or put uh, in no, closed actually, captioning? It's in Russian. Oh, so servant of the people, they use Russian in the in the show. Yes. It's, there's a lot of people in Ukraine who speak Russian, and uh, so some of their media is in Russian and some of it is in Ukrainian, and this particular show was in Russian. And Zelensky's first language growing up in Ukraine was Russian. Uh, and this this TV show is very funny, very sad about how hard it is to fix things. And then he started a political party named after the television show, and won the presidency of Ukraine by more than 70%. And now that's remarkable. Is that a fixed election or really an honest expression of a society that saw a great leader? Uh, no, the that was a real election. Well, that's beautiful. That's probably... That's likely what's pissing off Putin. He doesn't like real elections and real popular guys down there, don't you think? Part of this is personal between him and Zelensky? It's personal, but it's also um, uh, self-survival. The Georgians had a protest that led to a revolution ousting a dictator, and then the, the Ukrainians did they've they've gotten rid of really bad leaders twice the second time was in 2014 and uh yanukovych who was um putin's puppet and and, Man- and manafort's man right paul manafort um yes manafort, manafort uh helped um yanukovych this isn't that hard election. to figure out for me because why the hell would putin's main man manafort become trump's campaign manager for free Anyway, we we don't need to discuss that with you, but I always bring that up because uh, Putin was pissed that he paid all that money uh, to Manafort. They got their guy in, and then the people disrupted their plan, right? Yes, and it's not just that he lost his puppet in Ukraine, but he's very fearful that these examples of other Soviet former Soviet republics uh, people rising up and ousting corrupt leaders is going to give an example to Russians and that the Russians will then rise up and oust him. From your mouth to God's ears, how can we make that happen? You're complimenting the Russian people. They're smart. They they love their children. 
it all comes down to the information they get, right? Yes, and the Russian government is doing a really superb job of cutting off uh, all outside information. They're in the process of cutting off the entire Internet. Um, they've already cut off um, sources of news like Facebook and and uh, TikTok's Twitter. gone and, and uh, <clears throat> all kinds of um, social media. And they've put in a new law since the invasion began that is a 15-year sentence for anyone publishing fake news or broadcasting fake news. And, of course, to them, fake news includes calling this war a war or an invasion because they have convinced a huge number of Russian people that this is NATO attacking and the United States attacking Russia and it's defensive and or that it, there's no violence. Um and, and that they're fighting the, Nazis in Ukraine. Now the United States and the Nazis are together in Ukraine. They, don't the Russians at some point say, this is preposterous? Some of them do. Um, but unfortunately, there's a lot who don't. And um, to the extent that there are Ukrainians calling their family in Russia, and the family does not believe their kids that they're being bombed. I know. I'm going to play that sound. It's called Father, Please. You know, they're bombing us yeah. and the father is saying no. But what about Ukraine? I mean, what is this struggle all about? Is it like a civil war? Is it like the War of 1812? Is it domestic violence that Putin just can't let his part of the one of his conquests go and be happy? Um, what's going on here, Anne? Putin has said from the very beginning that he wants to restore the Soviet Union. So the parts, the, the, when the Soviet Union fell apart, it split into 15 republics, and he wants them all back. Um, I actually was in Moscow for the coup that ended the Soviet Union and wrote the story when Ukraine declared uh, independence 30 years ago. And... In the same story, I said, this is the end of the Soviet Union, because it would be like the Midwest declaring independence. And um, that would pretty much wipe out the United States as the country it had been. So, Right, good parallel. Ukraine Since is Ukraine key. is the breadbasket of the old Soviet Union, just like the Midwest is for us. Keep going. So, um, so Ukraine's independence was the key to the collapse of the Soviet Union as a country. Up until then, it had been mostly small countries like the Baltics and Georgia declaring independence. But when Ukraine declared independence, everybody knew that the Soviet Union was falling apart. And the reason all these republics did this is because the only thing that had kept them together was the, the force of the Soviet government and um, somewhat economics. But everybody in the Soviet Union felt like they were the colony, that they were being ripped off by everybody else. So there wasn't really a natural force holding the country together. And then since the collapse of the Soviet Union, uh, Russia has repeatedly tried to put in uh, puppets and succeeded for periods of time. And the Ukrainians have repeatedly ousted them and said, no, we want to be independent. And there's also the history um, in the 30s when Stalin was trying to uh, <clears throat> industrialize the Soviet Union. He did it by 
exporting all that grain from Ukraine and letting the people of Ukraine starve so that he could use that money to buy industrial equipment from the West. Now, we always debate nature versus nurture, and it's true for Americans, women from Wisconsin, or probably (laughs) your average Russian. So I'm just wondering if these people are like us. Can I relate to them in a human sort of way? Because I look back in history, for example, when Russia liberated, what was it, Budapest in Hungary, right? And they raped all the women. And then the Hungary experienced domination by Russia. And I thought, gosh, I don't think American soldiers would ever do something like that. Is there something different about Russia, more crude, more violent? Well, certainly the Ukrainians look at Putin and um, his history and want nothing to do with it. Um, aside from the corruption, um, there's a really good article that a guy named Jonathan Littell wrote in The Guardian, which says that over the last 22 years, while Putin's been in power, over and over, he has gone into other countries. And every American president for the last 22 years has not um, made him stop. And he has been learning over and over again that he can get away with it. In 1999, it was Chechnya. In 2008, it was South Ossetia and Georgia, which, by the way, was um, Georgia was a sovereign country at that point. Chechnya was part of Russia. And I tell people, if you want to know what Putin is like, he bombed the capital of Chechnya into nothingness. Uh, it would be sort of like the U.S. government bombing Colorado Springs into nothingness. You don't expect your own government to bomb you, and you certainly don't expect it to flatten your city. Um, The Chechens lost uh, as many as 200,000 people out of 1 million. So, you know, essentially he committed genocide in Chechnya. And what more do you need to know about somebody's character? And then in Donbass in 2014, and Crimea, and then in Syria in 2015, and he basically went in and and won the war for Assad in Syria. And every president we've had in the last 22 years has done nothing effective to make him stop. So it's teaching him, yes, you can get away with it. Well, he was thrown out of some organizations, and yet he keeps cheating. I mean, he's coming off in the Olympics where he, you know, tried to cheat with a 15-year-old probably pumped her full of drugs she didn't even know she was taking. I mean, that's the level of cheating. He got kicked out of the Olympics. He's a terrible person. I'm trying to think of an American leader who's a cheater like that and a liar. I mean, what do you see? You're objective. I I can't help but think that Trump and Putin talked about these things in Helsinki. No reporting was allowed, no note-taking. And when it comes to Russian compromise from a KGB guy like Putin, the easiest mark in the world is Donald Trump. So I'm worried that not only is Trump compromised, I'm worried about a lot of politicians being compromised because Putin made money hand over fist and he distributed it to other people who did his bidding and bought politicians and greased the wheels in every country they could. And they could in America Am I going too crazy conspiracy theory here? Calm me down, Anne. 
Um, you are correct that he has been buying politicians all over the world. And Russians know that. Some and he Russians has all the money. Hey, he, would you agree he's probably the richest guy in the world, too? Um, there are a lot of people who say that, but you know, he doesn't even have to be because he never intends to leave Russia. Um, he and he's got numerous palaces and uh, you know a unique lifestyle just based on being president for life. Essentially, he's changed the law so he can remain in power until 2034. He's already passed the average life expectancy for a Russian male although he's in much better shape than most of them since he doesn't drink and smoke. So um, he's, he could, he, he's wealthy in both senses. You know, he's probably got lots of money overseas, but the more important thing is he's got complete power, which is more important to him in, and luxury lifestyle in Russia. But what I, my point is he can, he has plenty of money to spend to bribe politicians. Yes, definitely. I mean, and that doesn't have to be his personal money. That's Russian right. money. Right. Yeah. He, he tells Oleg Deripaska, you're going to grease the guys in Kentucky, and uh, he's going to give another guy another assignment, and it's all over the world. And it works in America because the mighty dollar. I'm seeing some decisions made by some American politicians where I just shake my head. And it starts with Donald Trump. I think Putin's got him, and I've been saying that since Helsinki. How could it be more obvious? Well, we certainly don't know what they said in private in Helsinki, but what Trump said in public at Helsinki, uh, believing Putin about his interference or claiming he didn't interfere in the U.S. election um, over the uh extensive reporting by U.S. intelligence agencies really shocked everybody in the foreign policy establishment and to the extent that Trump had to walk it back like the next day and say that he didn't really mean to say that. Um, Trump has many, many times um, sided with Putin on things that have shocked Americans. So, Right, and he goes on Fox News. He he just went on Fox News with Hannity, and when given softballs, you think he's evil, don't you? He would not say that. And he said he loves his country, and he fights for his country, and that bullcrap, and it's that nationalism of Putin, it's a typical move of a tyrant. Don't you see parallels? Enemy of the people, that's what they call the media. It's the tyrant's playbook. Um, I try not to get put my political opinions. All right, well, in, that's, that's uh, not. Let me back away. Yeah, I'm going to back okay. away from that. I'm just wondering if you see a chance that good Russian people will rise up, and can they do anything about this? And if you were, let me, if you were a reporter there, what would you do? Would you keep reporting, or would you say I'm going back to America as an American correspondent, or as a Russian? Just say right now you're a freelance journalist, right? And maybe let's say... I think it'd be a very dangerous time to go be a freelancer because um, if you did something that Russians wanted to arrest you for, you wouldn't have any hope of getting out. Um, The Associated Press is still there. The New York Times has, and many other publications and 
um, media outlets have withdrawn their staff because they don't want to risk having them sentenced to 15 years in a Russian prison for reporting the truth. Um, Russian media, um, <clears throat> two of the biggest, uh, most successful independent media are TV Rain uh, and Echo of Moscow radio station. They've both been taken off the air and closed down. Um, <clears throat> and there's another one called Novaya Gazeta, which means new newspaper. And it is remaining publishing, and your listeners can go and look it up. There's, I think there's an English language translation on it. Um, they are trying to walk this fine line of not saying it's an invasion or war, but still publish accurate information. So if you look on their website, they have things like uh, stories about the millions of refugees showing up in uh, in Europe without actually covering the war. So they're, they're trying to get information out there and stay open, but not run afoul of this law and get sent to prison for 15 years. I'm wondering how this is going to work in 2022, to put down an iron curtain, to try to keep out all information. If you think about it, most of us learn stuff from our parents, right? That's the first source of information. And mm -hmm. then there are friends and extended family. So how can Russia crack down on that? Will they monitor every conversation and throw you in the gulag if you talk to an MC in Colorado and speak Russian and don't speak nice about Putin? Uh, there are Russian citizens who are not even in Russia who are afraid that they're being monitored now, and they're very careful about what they say. Um, but cutting off the Internet and becoming like China, where you uh, literally can't get hardly anything on the Internet except what China lets through, um, is really frightening for the people of Russia. And what's happening right now in Russia is in many ways, as scary as what's happening in Ukraine, because the smarter Russians are fleeing the country and the ones who are left behind are being cut off from other sources of information. So uh, the future for Russia does not look good. I mean, there are Russians saying this looks like Stalin, not, not even Soviet times, but all the way back to Stalin. You are an objective reporter, and yet would you have any problem saying that Putin is in the wrong here and Ukraine is in the right? Uh, no. the I mean, I think there's basic right and wrong, and there's probably every reporter who's a good reporter in the world cares about true information, um, but nobody wants to see huge numbers of people dying. Um I think one other piece of uh, one other context is, you know, the, the Ukrainians are looking at things like the flattening of the Chechen capital and realizing that this could be their fate, that their cities could get flattened by Russian bombs. And yet they're still fighting back. It's really incredible that they value freedom more than their lives. Right. We've never seen anything like this on our television screens. I'm old enough to remember Vietnam. And it was bad, but not like this. And let's face it, a lot of the Ukrainians speak English. They look like Americans. They're wearing Western clothing. And mm -hmm. from what I've 
read and learned. I've never been there. Kiev could be a Western capital. It's European. So, I, I mean, I, I don't think we can talk about Chechnya or, or Georgia because this is different. It's being covered far different. And, and I don't know how it can go on for 15 or 20 years. Do you? Um, well, first of all, it's being covered differently in part because these people look like us. And there's an element of racism there where we didn't care as much about Syrians, etc. Um, but a lot of what's happening is Europeans are looking at uh, Putin's invasion of Ukraine and saying, we're not sure he's stopping with Ukraine. He may come after us because he's completely changed 80 years of peace in Europe. So, and and there's the Moldova is a, the next likely target because it's another part of the former Soviet Union and not part of NATO. But everything else in Eastern Europe is part of NATO now. So if he keeps going to any one of those, you're talking about a war between Russia and NATO. So from the West's point of view, we are all way, way better off if the fight stays in Ukraine and the Ukrainians win. Right. But if the battle becomes Moldova, do you think most Americans will favor uh, World War Three over Moldova? I, I just... No. No, there won't be anything over Moldova because it was former Soviet Republic and it's not part of NATO. But if he goes on to any other republic, any other country in Eastern Europe, from Bulgaria to Poland, um, that's a NATO country, and we have to fight. Well, you say we have to, but we just had a president who is running again, who really wasn't friendly to NATO, and a lot of people thought in his second term he would get rid of it. And if it gets bad here and over there, I can see a political argument. The only guy who can reason with Putin is Donald J. Trump. He needs to be returned to office. And I can just see that argument being made. I mean, you agree he may run again, and you agree that he mm -hmm. wanted to undermine NATO. So where am I off on this? Um, he certainly did a lot to undermine NATO. and. Putin and Biden have done a lot to reverse that. Right. I mean, nothing brought NATO together like Putin's invasion of Ukraine. And For the now. Biden administration apparently has, yeah, has apparently spent a lot of time uh, in diplomacy to set up the sanctions that have been put into place. Uh, so NATO is a lot more unified than it has ever has been perhaps ever, because this feels like an existential threat to everybody in Europe. I love it. And I love the way Joe Biden is leading it. And I'm down with all of that. I'm just saying the midterms are coming up. Inflation's through the roof, gas prices, etc. Eventually, people are going to put Ukraine in the background and wondering, why are we spending all that money? Then we have problems with crime. We need a strong man. And I just wonder if that wasn't discussed at Helsinki. Well, like I know, I don't like I said, I don't know what was else was discussed right. at Helsinki, but um I 
certainly don't agree with people who think that um, Putin would not have done this while Trump was president. Um, I think it's the opposite, that he would have loved to have done this while Trump was president and COVID got in the way. Hmm. We might have to agree to disagree about that because I think there may be some compromise involved, but I don't know that for sure. And uh, I suppose the proof will be in the pudding. I, I, I think these evil men make plans, but then the people react, just like Donald Trump did not get a second term, maybe because of COVID, but for whatever reason, we were spared that. And then uh, the people in Ukraine won't fold the way that Putin probably thought they would. And so it, it comes down to the people, but the people need the information God bless reporters like you with the courage to do it. I didn't ask you why you wanted to be a reporter, and I know you still are a journalist with every fiber of your being. What is it about that profession that attracts you? Originally, it was just that I'd get to learn about something new every day. Um, you have to learn about whatever it is you're writing. And, and over the years, there have been a lot of different things that I've written about. Um, but actually, it was a high school teacher who taught Russian history who got me interested in Russia. And um, my dad was an engineer who had lots of um, European friends, and they would come to dinner occasionally when I was a kid. So I was exposed to international um, relations as a pretty young kid. So that got me interested in covering Russia. And then I went there as a student, and I was just like, this is a terrific story. I want to be here. These are fascinating people. And it just is so interesting and, uh, and fits my personality, and then I really value the truth over everything. Well, there you go. That's the winning answer right there. And my last question to you is, when I thought about the Ground Zero Mosque, as it was called, I decided to go to New York and to look at the neighborhood. And I eventually said, you know, this is much more a New York City issue than it is for somebody from Denver. And as much as we are involved in this Ukraine drama, it occurs to me that the people of Europe really are on the front lines. And you're a student of Europe and all that. What is what do you think Europe's posture is and a new Germany? Just just tell me, because you're so well read. What are they thinking in Europe right now? Well, Germany has passed a rule that is vastly increasing their military budget, which certainly doesn't isn't what Putin wanted. And the European Union, for the first time, has given Ukraine huge amounts of weaponry. I'd never given weaponry to anyone. And individual uh, Europeans are seeing the effect of this 2 million um, refugees coming from Ukraine. Um, the reason many of them are going into Poland is they're hoping that Poland has a strong enough economy that they can get jobs. And uh, But there's other places like Bulgaria where they're heading, which are pretty poor and... Um, it may be a bit more difficult for them to absorb refugees and may become a bit more problematic of not wanting them there. And I expect if you live in a city like Paris or London, which experienced World War II, 
with mm-hmm. buildings being rubbleized. I I just it, it has to be a level of fear in Europe. I just didn't think we'd ever be here again. And MC, we're about the same age. I thought the Cold mm-hmm. War was over. We won, but not in the mind of Putin. And he wants to be the winner in the end. And I just don't know what lengths he'll go to. I do know as an old prosecutor that a serial murderer keeps murdering and gets more bloodthirsty. Talk me down off the ledge. How, how will this end well? Well, starting with the worst case, um, it could actually go to nuclear war. Right. But um, to me, the best case scenario for ending this is that Putin dies. And I don't know that even if massive numbers of Russians rose up and complained, which it doesn't really look like is going to happen because they're so cut off from reality. Um, it's much more likely that it would be a coup. Um, Columbia researchers figured out that uh, 80% of dictators leave office in violence. So the odds are that 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 is what will happen to Putin. Maybe somebody could put a little, uh, what is it, plutonium in his tea or underwear (laughs) or something like that. Yeah, I, I, I hate to wish death on anybody, and I'm not Lindsey Graham, um, and I doubt they're going to broadcast this in Russia, but a lot of people are thinking about that, and I'm glad you articulated it. Um, I, I like the fiddler on the roof. Do you remember when they asked the rabbi for the proper prayer for the czar? I don't remember exactly, no. May God bless and keep the czar far away from us. <laughs> I want Putin yes. out of my life. Yes. Anyway. Most Russians would be thrilled if he was he were to die a natural death. Right. And they yes. could have someone else. And, and you know, the whole nuclear strike and mutually assured destruction, isn't that kind of ridiculous? I mean, if if the big one's coming our way, then we're gonna nuke everybody in Moscow. The poor people who have no choice. You know what I'm saying? It's, it seems a little uncivilized. And the whole weapon system, uh, I, I don't know where it's going to lead, but let's not go there and let's figure out a way uh, to get out of it. And MC, I, I can't thank you enough for being part of this podcast. You've been there. Do you have a, a hopeful word word for us? Uh, give us an optimistic ending Putin dies and then freedom breaks out. Do you think Russia could handle freedom? Um, they had a good a good sense of it for ten years when the Soviet Union ended and um, Yeltsin uh, opened up a lot of things. And one of the reasons a lot of people are leaving now is because they're afraid that the that Putin will close the borders. So. Um, it's conceivable, not very likely, I have to say, but it's at least conceivable that this could all end up backfiring. You know what could turn the tide is McDonald's French fries, because they that's a top 10 food in the world. And to be deprived of that now, I just think, how are you going to keep them on the farm once they've seen the big city? I hope the people of Russia become friendly. What a great world this could be if people just left everybody else alone. I, I, my last question, because 
you know, if you're an American, we were taught America's the best, capitalism works beautifully. But most of us have never lived in another system, and we see certain inequities. You were in that glorious time in Russia, kind of a blend of communism, socialism. You can describe it. But was it working there? I noticed you said everybody was poor. Is that the evidence that it doesn't work that well? Um, yes, I think that um, when I was there as a student, um, when communism was full-fledged and um, there were no reform, none of the Gorbachev reforms yet, um, yeah, it just didn't work. Um, I had a friend whose job was to work for a factory collecting the parts and supplies they needed to make whatever it was they were making from other factories because you couldn't just go and buy them. Um, it was all direct, all the distribution was directed by bureaucrats in Moscow, who of course couldn't possibly determine whether you needed a pound of nails in, uh, Chechnya or, you know, 10,000 pounds of nails in Chechnya. And it just didn't succeed at producing things for the, for the people or distributing them for the people. And, um, there is nothing in it that makes anybody want to do anything uh, better, more efficiently, or cheaper. It just doesn't operate. It's not good for business. It just makes sense. If somebody's not motivated to do a good job, why would they? Anyway, and right. you've done a great job throughout your career as a journalist. I give you the last word on this special show where we're talking to Moscow correspondents. Um, I sure hope things uh, turn out peacefully for the Ukrainians very quickly, and it's very complicated, and I'm not sure how that happens, but I'm really proud of Ukrainians for fighting for themselves. To quote Mike and the mechanics, all we need is a miracle. Anyway, thanks, Ann. Thanks for laughing at that. Thanks for being my guest, and I'll see you around the Denver Press Club. Okay, thanks. All right, bye now. Bye. Michael Bailey, a friend, a lawyer, a sponsor. Tell everybody how you bring peace of mind to their life. So by setting up your estate plan, you know what's going to happen to your stuff when you die. You know where it's going to go, you know who's going to get it. We've got everything in place so we're not running to a court to try to get guardianship and conservatorship as quickly as possible. But then it's an orderly proceeding of things. So, you know, there's already enough chaos with the medical emergency, but the legal part of it and who can make decisions is all outlined, it's all set up. So there's, it's like the, the smooth transition of power. That's cool because you can avoid so many problems by having a medical power of attorney and discussing it with a smart guy like Michael Bailey because who should have this? It's probably somebody close. Who do you trust most among your children to make that call? These are the hard and good questions that you ask every day, right, Michael? Right. And if you ask them beforehand, when you're not in the middle of a crisis, then when a crisis hits, we're not trying to do crisis management and medical emergency and everything else. We're going, okay, we've got a smooth transition of power here. We've got a smooth who's in charge, and we can have that all flow so that we can focus on the care. There are so many things in life that you can fill out a form 
and save yourself money, save yourself heartache. Some people die out of nowhere quickly, but more often you get sick, you have medical difficulties, so it all goes together. But your system works, it works beautifully. What is the best way to contact you these days? Best way, uh, you can give me a call. My phone number is 720-394-6887. And again, that's 720-394-6887. Or you can go online to michaeldailylawllc.com. And there is a an appointment page on my website that you can use. So either way is fine. Thanks, Michael. Hey, if you like this show, please shout it out on your Purple Apple podcast app. It would be so wonderful if you would scroll down, spot that place to leave a five-star review and your personal review. Kind words appreciated. Thanks so much. Tell your friends. You're so timely. Thank you, Troubadour. Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Shalom. How are you, Craig? I'm good, but I'm not vacationing like you. How was skiing today? Skiing was excellent. Snow is good. It was very cold. I can imagine. We've been in the icebox, but we are trying to get out of it. And uh, we'd like to get out of the Cold War, and we hope it's not a hot war. Have you been following all this? Well... I haven't listened to the news today, but most mornings I get up, Craig, and see, you know, with, with, and with uh, consternation, with fear, I, li- I want to listen to the news to see what might have happened the night during the night in Ukraine. Can it's I tell changing you? changing day to day. Yes. And here we are on the home front, and we've got this representative Cawthorn. Have you heard about him? Madison no, Cawthorn? Have not. He's a weird guy in a wheelchair, handsome dude, strange as hell. I believe he's a white power guy, and he gave a speech attacking my hero, Volodymyr Zelensky. Oh. Called him a thug, said Ukraine is corrupt, and he's an ally of Marjorie Taylor Greene, Lauren Boebert, Donald J. Trump. And I just see this evil and... Trump was on with Hannity last night, and Hannity said, I know you pretty darn well. You know, you say you get along with these bad guys like Putin, but you know they're evil, right? And Trump would not say it. He changed the subject. And so Mm -hmm. can I give you the worst, Tucker Carlson? You know what he's doing? Oh, Tucker Carlson, tell me what he's doing. He's put out there uh, that... The United States and Ukraine have some secret biolabs where they are developing chemical weapons. And a lot of people think, one, hey, that's bullshit. And two, you're saying it as a precursor for Russia to do a chemical attack on Ukraine. That's how bad you've right. gotten, Tucker Carlson. I mean, right. This, yeah, this. I heard something about that. He, he'll he put something out there and just say, oh, I'm just asking questions, that kind of thing. Right. And we have a local right, example, right. a guy named Matt Dunn. Have you ever heard of him? He does Backbone Radio Sunday nights at 710 KNUS, and he's Colorado's Tucker Carlson. Hey, I'm no. just asking questions, that sort of crap. Right. 
Right. No, no, I can't see how that's helping the cause at all of peace. Okay, no. let me t- let me tell you who had an idea for peace, according to the Drudge Report. This just came out. I bet you haven't heard about it, but it hit me like a gut punch that Israel's Naftali Bennett, who went and saw Putin, has told Zelensky that the best thing he can do is surrender. Right. Did you hear about right. that? No, no, but it's not surprising. I was following you. I knew what you were going to say. I know, but it feels like a conflict in the Jewish world, and you and I are two Jews, so how do we puzzle this out? I don't know, Craig. I wish I had some answers on this. Well, I'll tell you, you know, uh, you know where you go for answers? When you go to experts. I'm going to play, I have played Ruth ben Gayat. She's an expert on tyrants, how you deal with them, stuff like that. Yes. But uh, where do we go? Where do I feel like going when we have tough times? And I'm a pretty old dude now, not as old as our troubadour, but <laughs> I feel like running to my mommy and my daddy and saying, mommy, daddy, what do we do? Especially my dad. He was so smart. Your dad, Henry Gunders, is still alive. And I can't help but thinking about him. It was episode yes. 21 when he was featured, grew up in Munich, yes. Yes. Got, got out just in time. It's happening in his homeland, you know, next door. Yeah. My gosh. Have you talked to him about it? I have, and he's shown concern, but I, I have to say at this point, he's not, um, He he's he's really not all that engaged with it other than knowing that Good. there's trouble. Good. Yeah. Because yeah. what can yeah. he do about it? What can we right. do about it? And I think... Yeah. I'd like to feel we're making a difference talking about it. And your song, My Dad, is perfect for this week because uh, I sent you that report. I don't know if you watched it, but there's so many people from Russia who live in Ukraine and vice versa. And his son Mm -hmm. was trying to communicate to his dad in Russia. We're getting bombed here and his dad wouldn't believe it. I mean, that's how deep disinformation can go. Right. Right. No, you wonder the average Russian, you you wonder what they really do know. And I don't think it's very much, you know, they, they hear things like special operations and that that's a, and I know that they made, uh, um, you know, truthful journalism um, punishable by up to 15 years in prison, mentioning things like war and, and invasion and that kind of thing. So the, the, I did hear that a lot of journalists have fled Russia. Right. But do you yeah. know where I think most of us get most of our information is from our dad, our mom, our family, right. our friends, right? That's and right. Yeah. So, yeah. so, but you can manipulate the population, but uh, that's why we need free exchanges. I don't think they're going to allow podcasts if Putin ever, God forbid, ruled over here. And free speech mm. is just vital. And it's not just for people who want to talk about the news. Have you thought about the impact of censorship and Putinism on music and the arts? It, it, they they don't create hardly anything because they right. stifle creativity. Of course. No, no, it's probably a very risky time for artists because artists want to speak the truth. You know, they want to hold the truth up to the light, however they do it, through music or, you know, 
writing and other other mediums, you know. They shouldn't have to pull their punches. And uh, mm. But you could probably write My Dad in Russia. I would hope so. And I, I, I think, think so. it's so appropriate because I'm I'm longing for my dad. Although, frankly, you know, it's like, I bet you feel this way. Your dad, why should he have to witness this again in his life? It's Right. It, it's outrageous. And... But your dad, he's such a cool guy, and you have a line in there, because when you got info from him, it sounds like you could take it to the bank. What's that line? He's so truthful. That's right. Yeah. Well, it's about him. It's about him, you know, always speaking the truth and, uh, and you know, emphasizing how important it is to pursue truth, not lies. You know, that was my, that was my father all the way. I wish your father could have been Putin's father, because Putin's father was badly wounded in World War II, bitter about it. Other Putin family members lost in World War II, and Russia suffered so oh. much during World War II. So many more deaths than America experienced, and you can't help but feel that Putin is thinking about that history and ancient Russia being right. dominant, and he wears that crucifix around his neck given to him by his mother. There's a lot mm. going on in that man's mind, and he kind of holds the fate of the world one man. One man. It's ridiculous. It is one, it is one man. It is one man. We're, we're, uh, we're at his whim, aren't we, because he, because he carries the big weapons and— We've got to be careful. We've got to be careful in terms of engaging directly with Russia as much as, as, much as I'm sure Americans want to help Ukraine. Um, it's something we've got to think in terms of the, you know, the, the, the long-term impact on the world and on the United States as far as you know, having a direct conflict with Russia. That can't end well. That would be uh, something I really don't even want to imagine, Craig. I think Joe Biden is doing a good job. A lot of backbiting. I bring it yes. out on my show, but he's doing yeah. the best he can in a very I tough agree. situation. He is, and, and, it, and it is, yes. And it's really Europe's fight. Germany is more in the neighborhood than we are, and we have to listen to them, and we have to coordinate because, gosh, it's dangerous. Anyway, I think we should end the way we started this conversation because— God, we could use your help right now. We could use it. You know, may God bless and keep Putin far away from us and far away That's from right. Ukraine, too. Right. All and right. Help, and help the people of Ukraine. I'm glad you're talking about it and thinking about it and put your good word out there, Craig. Well, I'm glad you have an uplifting song about a good man, not a bad man. Your dad, yeah. my dad, yeah. about Henry Gunders by Troubadour Dave Gunders. Shabbat Shalom, my friend. Shabbat Shalom. Thank you, Craig. Thank you. Bye. Bye.
acts of kindness and never blindness. He's right there when you need him to. There ain't a problem he ever shied away from. He finds his way. He's a confident man. He never judge. He loved to ask the questions that shine the light. Help me understand. you this was a heck of a show and I hope you enjoyed it. We didn't mean to frighten you. We need to talk about the very real things going on right now. Tucker Carlson, what a problem that guy is. But Dave Gunders, he's the opposite of Tucker Carlson. Thank you, Troubadour. Thanks, Larry Rickman. What a great guest. And MC, both of you with the tenacity, determination to realize that This conflict between Russia and America was important, and it still is. My gosh. Please, Lord, get us through another week. Mr. Putin, I'm not rooting for you. Other people are, but not me. I'm keeping my eye on them. Please keep your ears on us. If you like our show, tell a friend. Give us a high rating. Subscribe. You know what to do on all your favorite podcast channels. Thank you for listening. Until next time, have a nice week. Thank you for listening. Tune in live every Saturday morning, 9 to noon, Mountain Time. Visit thecraigsilvermanshow.com for the podcast, blog, and more. Be sure to subscribe on all major podcasting platforms to be updated when new episodes are available. This has been The Craig Silverman Show.